0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, November 17, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. This is an important Friday morning show. This is an extremely important Friday morning show. Okay. I want to give Josh and Rev a reason to – I want them to express a reason why I believe or guess. I mean, you make it a guess. Why do I believe – this is a a little more important of a Friday show than we normally do on Fridays. I mean, I, I'm playing chess. Yeah, I'll level yeah. with you. I but mean, that's unfair. It's, it's
1: probably not something as simple and mundane as the fact that we won't be doing a show next Friday. Not remotely close to simple and mundane, okay. unless
0: you really think about it. Okay, um, it's that it's that bright light right before your eye. I can't see for the I can't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. The reason this is an important song, I mean, song. Uh, Josh and I were talking about songs. Hey, Josh, tell them what your dad does.
2: He he does uh, what you do when you're listening to music, which is you sing or sometimes say the lyrics. I don't lyrics. sing. I don't sing. Yeah, you, you speak the lyrics as or before they're happening. And your dad does that. My dad does that
1: all the wonder time. Wonder why
2: that is. Do you do that, Rev? I do not. Yeah.
0: Wonder why that is. Some people. I mean, I do. It's like it's almost like, hey, this is a great lyric, and I'm not sure you give it the attention it deserves. So <laughs> I'm think, going to speak it. I, I think you're just I trying. That's to,
2: exactly what's going on.
1: I think you're trying to prove that you know. And I know this song. I know the word before he even sings it. I, I think, know it. I'm think, that big of a fan.
0: I think it's because I want you to appreciate the lyric as much as I do, and I don't think you do. So so I'm going to just like, I mean, like my wife says, you, you're overbearing. I mean, you're you relentless. I mean, you're just like people don't like that as much as you do. I mean, when we go tailgate tomorrow, please God, don't play Springsteen uh, nonstop. I mean, just give people a break. A second. Let that. them come up for oxygen <laughs> every now. Well, we could play. What was the song you were humming this morning?
1: More than a feeling.
0: Yeah, it makes dudes want to hold hands. Um, <laughs> what <are> you talking? <laughs> <me>? Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, um, a great song.
1: I mean, we, we, Boston's Boston? a little
0: overrated. Well, I thought you were saying, "Hey, Boston." I don't
1: overrated?
0: know. Overrated? Those may be fight words with us of those yeah. children in the <laughs> '80s. Come on,
2: man. <laughs> Might be. You yeah. know, look up that first don't Boston album. Don't you say album. anything
0: suppository about our different uh, <laughs> decade of music, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> don't you ever do that? Overrated. Uh, yeah, overrated. Whoa, whoa, man. whoa! Man, let's, let's take a break. We'll be back yeah. in a few minutes. <laughs> I'm go talk to Josh Minus Josh. For minus Josh has <laughs> wow. been to the gym, but Josh, Josh's got to Johnny come lately to the gym. <laughs> Maybe some some of that testosterone is making (laughs) its way to the forefront um, early this morning. I would urge you,
1: Josh, by the way, to spend some time with Boston's first album. First of all, listen to it all the way through. It is genius. It's genius. Remember, it was produced in the early 1970s, and then look at the sales history, how long it went to, as a debut album, went and sold more copies than any debut album in history.
0: What What is the album of our time, Rev? I mean, what is the, I mean, is it Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven? Is it dark yeah. side of the moon I'm talking yeah. about the album i'm talking about the hit singles I right. mean, you yeah. and I, we're, I'm talking about the album I mean somebody yeah. have you ever listened to the back to the the b side uh, I guess it would be the flip side of backside of the moon
1: uh, Yes,
0: it's it's pretty wild. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's like whoa, where did I go? Uh, am I back?
1: And and that's and uh, I didn't take anything. And that's an album that went to number one and stayed a, a what a thousand a, years, a record yeah. number of yeah. weeks and months and years at number one.
0: I think in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then Adam and Eve, and then Dark Side of the Moon. And I think it's um been on the album charts for about for about. I mean it's 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 crazy how many weeks that album spent. But that was in the old days of albums, Josh. Right. They stole they they kind of told a story. Um. And we didn't, I, I get I get back to this incident gratification generation. And I'm not saying one generation's better than another, but they're all different. I mean, we would agree with that. They're all very unique and different. The things that we thought were important, you guys probably don't think.
1: Let's <laughs> see, are so I, much I, important. I would put the Boston album. I would put Dark Side of the Moon, Zeppelin 4, which has Stairway on it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking yeah. about, Zeppelin 4. Yeah, it has Black Dog, Rock and Roll, Stairway to Heaven, Misty Mountain Hop. I mean, just amazing. Hotel California? Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, mean, I think a- that absolutely.
0: would be, uh, Absolutely. and, uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to say it because you guys accused me of being a homer <laughs> and I want to be humble. So I'm not going to be a homer mm-hmm. today. I'm going to be, I'm going to be humble. I introduced Rev yesterday to someone. We're jumping around this morning, but we'll have plenty yeah, we of time. We want to get back to the why uh, Friday we do, we is do. so special. we well, see. I'm playing the game of radio. Okay. A little suspense yeah, there, man. You got us um, hooked. As oh. if people really care. Well, I think it's an important Friday. <laughs> um, it's an important Friday morning because I was be able to get up, take a shower and make my way to the radio station. And instead of paying two eighty nine for gas, this is being in the business at one time. I held off and nearly ran out Wednesday, knowing there was going to be a big decrease in the price of gas because I saw really? some crude oil fluctuations, and I'd been to the convenience store
1: business. You know how that So works. I
0: knew. I said, "Yeah, I'll get, I'll get gas." And I thought two sixty five, two sixty four. Actually, got gas yesterday at two fifty nine. And had I bought it the day I needed it, I mean, I literally got here yesterday. Nah, yeah, yesterday on fumes. I'm convinced of that. But uh, but anyway, uh, that made me feel a little bit, it's amazing what makes you feel good when you get older. <laughs> Questions: question is, did you wake up at 3.30 again? I did. I absolutely mm-hmm. did. I just had to take a shower. You know, I just kind of lollygagged around. Didn't go to Waffle House. <laughs> I didn't eat 6,000 calories of um, hash brown and waffle and eggs at 3.45 as I did Tuesday morning. That would have been Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning. I mean, I'm sitting at the Waffle House at 4.05. Mm-hmm. What the hell? You know, it, and it's like a couple of dudes come in from um, some electrical company as if they were making their way um, to work. So I introduced Rev yesterday to Shelby Foote. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, just different sorts of things. We're recently talking about war, Josh. And we're talking about, I mean, I've got this theory on war and I believe the problem with war, Well, I mean, there's a lot of problem with war. What is it good for? You know, what's the song? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um but we've—I mean, there, there's been war since the beginning of time. There'll probably be war until the end, the uh, the end of time. One of the differences about modern wars, you ready? They get diplomatic and political. I've read enough over the last couple of weeks about Israel and and, and Gaza and Hamas and uh, Ukraine and Russia and some of the um, some of the Russian-speaking people in Ukraine that we don't hear much from. Where do they want to? Uh, do they want to be Russians or do they want to be Ukrainians? I don't know. I mean, I don't take ABC or, or NBC at their word, so I don't know. Um, but I do know this. the From what I've read and, and what I understand, at the s- end of the Second World War, which shaped the world I live in, at the end of the Second World War, there wasn't a lot of bartering Japan could do or Germany. I mean, they were obliterated, right? I mean, uh, Truman drops the the atomic bomb that ends the war uh, but drops another, you know, the story of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But anyway, um, there was finality. I mean, there was a clear winner and a clear loser. And to the victor go the spoils. We talked earlier about the conquest mindset. How many borders of European countries are settled by diplomatic political solutions or conquest? I mean, it was conquest before the end of the Second World War and including the Second World War. And now we've gotten fancy schmancy, and we conclude wars with diplomatic, you know, uh, seminars or summits. Summits would be uh, the better word. We have diplomacy and politics and and summits saying you get a little bit of this and I get a little bit of that. And there is no clear winner. And I think that's why wars have ended as they have, with, with uncertainty. Um, I mean, it's obvious that, once again, at the end of the Second World War, I mean, we built back some of these countries there's now we'll build back Ukraine and we'll probably have a hand in building back some of Gaza, but there was finality. Uh, but there was a winner and a loser. Uh, the Braves play; it's a win. They win a walk-off home run, or they lose to a walk-off home run. They don't go have a summit after the fact and say, "Well, that game was close, and if that shortstop hadn't made that play in the fifth inning, and if um, if Olson had, you know, that ball he hit to the warning track, no." It seems that that's what we do now, and maybe. That's just in our bones, the, 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 the compromising DNA that all of us have. But I think wars have to be clearly won. And I think Israel's going to do that. I, I've, I'm reading a lot about this, and it seems to me that some of the IDF and some of the, I guess, political leadership of, of, um, of Israel, and they've not referred to what I'm talking about. And I'm not, I mean, there's some theorists out there that say the problem with modern wars is we don't. there's not a finality. That there's a one getting the best of the other, and the other says, hey, can we sit down and talk about this? And, and in previous times, I mean, it was once again, uh, Japan and Germany didn't have a lot of negotiating sway. Uh, Germany sits at the table. Japan says, well, America, we'd like to have. Well, Europe, uh, England, we'd like to have. Uh, we don't care what you'd like to have. Here's what you get. Does that make sense? Uh, anyway, yeah, I just. kind of how it's worked. Yeah, I want to clear up some of what, we, of what we talked about. But anyway, I introduced Shelby Foot yesterday, Rev. And the reason I was talking about war, uh, we've talked a lot about war in the last two weeks. And, you know, we've had a, a multitude of opinions. You believe certain things. I believe certain things. You're suspicious of certain reasons. I'm suspicious of other reasons. But Shelby Foot does about as good a job of explaining or articulating the significance and importance and historical accuracy of the Civil War. I mean, he really does. And he says, you know, the Civil War, I mean, we were an an adolescent of a nation. I like to say we were a baby of a nation in, what, 1862, 1863-ish, somewhere thereabout, when we were full-fledged in a Civil War. I would encourage anybody, whether you're interested or not, and he's not a Confederate apologist. I mean, he's a Southern boy. He, he makes no bones about that. One of the interesting, I guess, Southern colloquials, Rev, is when he says, he doesn't say in my childhood. He says in my boyhood. Hmm. That's just Southern, in my boyhood. It's childhood, dude. Well, it may be in Massachusetts, but it's boyhood uh, on, the, on the, the, the Mississippi River Delta. But, um, but they asked him in the interview. And and once again, he's an historian. He's an author. He's a novelist. Uh, he's an accomplished man. He started writing a three series narrative of the Civil War in 1954. Josh, in 1954, he began writing a narrative. You know when he finished it, 1974. It took him 20 years, and he didn't do anything else. And he went to Shiloh, and he went to uh, Fredericksburg, and he went to Gettysburg, and he tried to understand. You know, the, uh, the motivations of the South and the motivations of the North. And when asked yesterday, I was watching this after I left here, Rev, and asked, when asked about Lee fighting for Virginia and not the Union, because if Lee had taken the golfer to fight for the Union, he would have been president. Lee said he didn't think about it two seconds. I'm not fighting for slavery. I'm fighting with my people. I just thought that's such an interesting, I mean, what would you do? I mean, if you're an abolitionist and you believe that slavery needed to be done away with, and it did, I mean, there's no question about it, it did need to be done away with, would you have fought with the Confederacy that were on the side? I didn't say the war was all about slavery because that's kind of the media misnomer. It was not all about slavery. It was largely about slavery, but there were a lot of other things. Um, the South felt that, the, you know, the, the North, And the Union and Lincoln were taking the country in a fairly radical direction, and they want to know part of that. Uh, I wrote down something this morning, a country of nations. Uh, You know, the South always felt this was a country of nations. How do you put that down? I don't don't know. A country of nations. Uh, The United States of America. I mean, it's 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 a, is it Gamecock Nation or Tiger Country? You know, those words don't mean exactly the same thing. The South always felt that we were to be a country of nations and you do your thing and I'll do mine. And they felt that the union wanted this uh, everybody kind of sings off the, the same sheet of music. And that was radical to the Southerners, the majority of Southerners. But when when they asked Shelby Foot about who he'd fight with, he said, I mean I can answer that as quick as Lee did. I'm not I'm not, not fighting with my people. And I was from Mississippi. And he it's just an interesting I mean if you have any curiosity at all about the importance and significance of the Civil War, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you, to um, go on YouTube, uh, YouTube Shelby Foot. I mean, I don't know how many of you want to read a three-series narrative that took him 20 years to write. It's unbelievably compelling, but you can find him on YouTube. And in the era of war, I mean, we're talking a lot about war, the, uh, the Israeli-Hamas war, the Ukrainian-Russian war, uh, the potential Taiwan-Chinese war. Um, is America going to get involved in this war or that war, the war that is fundamental to our existence? I mean, the Revolutionary War created our nation. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But the, the war that defined who we are today is a civil war. I mean, th- there is no doubt about it. It was our becoming an adult leaving adolescence. I mean, it is the period of time that America grew up. Shelby Foote says this, Josh. He says, you know, the war was inevitable. Slavery needed to be done away with, abolished. We needed an Emancipation Proclamation, and there was no way around that. Whether Douglas or Lincoln win, inevitably, we're going to war over that very critical issue in our existence. The tragedy is four years of just absolute slaughtering. I think 675,000 troops died in the Civil War, about a million casualties. I mean, imagine that. The, the, the North had somewhere around 1.5 million troops. The South had about 750 or 800,000 troops. And nearly a million, a million died over four years. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 takes Mondays to make Fridays.
1: All this talk of the Civil War. Well, we're and-
0: talking a lot about war. Yeah. I mean, we're talking well, a lot about sense. war makes on sense. the show
1: today. Uh, so you're born and grew up in the South, and I was not. I grew up. In Ohio. And so I just wonder, because the Civil War, to me, you know, I learned about it in in school. It was just, it was American history, obviously. But I wonder if it's different for you than it is for me when you look back on the Civil War. I think
0: we have a bit of a, I can't speak for every Southern boy. Um, I'm about as Southern as they come. I'm unapologetically Southern. I celebrate my Southern heritage. But yeah, I mean, there's probably a bit of me that wonders if the world looks at us that way. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I think you understand that way. You understand what that way means. Are those those guys that still want slavery to be existing? Um, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a play on. I know when I open my mouth, you deduct 20 IQ points. That's a little bit. That, that's my problem, not yours. Right. So, yeah, I mean, Shelby Foote says better than I. He says a southern boy carries around the ghost of the Civil War in his bones. That's pretty hmm. prophetic. A Southern boy carries around the burden or the ghost of the Civil War in his bones. And when I think about it, I probably do. Yeah, I probably do feel a little bit different than you do. I don't know what I'm trying to say. And I don't know if it's—I um. I mean, I'm not proud of um of slavery. I'm not proud that the South appeared to be more supportive of slavery than not. Um, now, Shelby Foote also says this, and then we'll get to the phone— Shelby Foote said the tragedy in all of this was the Emancipation Proclamation frees a bunch of people, and, or the Constitution freed, the amendment to the Constitution freed the slaves, but they had no education, no ability to sustain themselves, and you just kind of said, hey, go have at it. And they've never been a part of the real world. They've been, a very, I mean, they've, they've been property. I mean, they've been property, so you tell property that now you have the right to go to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What, what do you mean? I'm property, man. All I've ever been—I'm never been a human being. I've been property in this world. And you're telling me that because a president signed an amendment or a, or a document that I can go do my thing now. And Shelby foot talks a lot about the great mistake we made was not preparing, you know, for the day that slaves would be set free and, and, you know, try to help them create sustaining lives for themselves. And, you know, some of that we still deal with, um, today, uh, it's been a long time, but there's still some of that. Yeah, but, but to your point, if I, if I grew up in Cincinnati and felt that I was on the quote-unquote right side of the argument, yeah, I mean, I'd probably feel differently than I do today. I mean, you know, I'm willing to discuss it. And I mean, I've told you this. One of the great questions I have about my ancestry, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather died at Chancellorville. Was he there defending slavery? Or was he there because he thought the Northerners had become too radical and we're trying to carry the country in a way that he was totally opposed to. Were they coming after his farm? I don't know the answer to that, but I'd love to. Let's go to the phone.
1: Roger in Pamplico. Good morning,
3: fellas. I'm getting all kind of interference all of a sudden here. Can you hear me?
1: We well, hear you. Yeah, just yeah, fine. you yeah. Fine. yeah.
3: Well, I'm getting some background interference. Yeah, I, I do hear
0: some again. background music for some reason. We have um, something in the, uh, the sound bus here, here, Josh. Yeah. Is that better, Roger? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, we got you now. We got you, (laughs) loud and clear.
3: Yeah, one of the best things about the Civil War was um, Ken Burns' documentary years ago. Now I remember showing it in to my classroom, uh, and Shelby Foote was a big part of that. But uh, oddly enough, I didn't call to talk about that. You actually
1: did. Hey, we kind of lost you. We lost you, Roger. Sound like you went off microphone there.
3: You there? Yeah, Yeah, we're here. You now fine.
0: Oh, okay. I'm anyway,
1: kind we're right of losing back. you again, Roger. Yeah, we're losing
0: you again. I don't know what this is going on. Maybe
1: I can call back. Yeah, hang up yeah. and
0: call right back. I mean, we got our end cleared up, and now yeah. he's having problems <laughs> on, on his end. 843-661-0937. Yeah, Rev that, 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 and I were saying yesterday, we hadn't heard from Roger I know. In, in quite a while. So um, every time we say we hadn't heard from such and such, in quite a while. you activate call. Cuss's call. Um, <laughs> well, you know what that sounds like? It's sounded. almost like we've got ESP in it, Josh. Sometimes.
1: <laughs> sometimes. <somewhat. laughs> but, the, but, it, but it almost sounds like, you know, when so, somebody has like a, a headset attached and then it detaches and you're talking through your phones, picking you up off the table where it's sitting. Yeah. That's almost what it sounded I like hear. there as we yeah, dropped you, off. You're there. more uh, – it just sounds like we could hear him good and then we couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be technical, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you
0: know, <laughs> we could hear him good and then we couldn't. That, that's right. where i leave Let's it. See um, if he's back on Yeah, refs talking about oh. all these – technological I reasons. Know. Well, you do know
1: yeah. that's your
0: problem. You do. And I don't let's go to the hey, phone.
1: See if Rogers there, Roger, you back.
0: Yeah. Can you hear me now? Oh, Perfect. better, Perfect. better,
1: better.
3: Okay. Anyway, I was going to go back to what you were talking about gas prices. And you remember when I was in college and really during the summer, whenever, uh, when I first started teaching many years, you remember dry drove a fuel truck over there in Pamplico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, back in those days, I really thought, and to extent it hasn't left me all these years, that there was a difference. The place I worked uh, was affiliated with Shell, and there was Shell and Esso back in those days, Gulf. There was some major brand name gasolines that you kind of looked at as being better quality than maybe, <laughs> you know, an off-brand or no-name uh, gas station, Saveway, whatever. Um, Safeway was always cheaper back in those days, and we always—I th- really thought that there was a difference in gasolines those in those days. I'm kind of interested to see if you, and really see what some of your viewers might think. Do they grade uh, brand names today? Gasolines like they did in those days or they ever did. In other words, do you, for example, let me ask you, Ken. you just pull into the cheapest place, or are you more affiliated with some of the brand names, like a Shell or a BP or something like that? I'll admit that i still got a little bit of that in me. I'll pay a little more to BP or Shell or uh, Amoco maybe than I would a no-name place. My wife just pulls in where it was the cheapest. You know, and I think most people do that today, but I'd kind of like to get the staff's opinion there of how they look at gasoline and maybe some of you viewers, you know, I thought it would be interesting to me because you can go on the internet and you'll get all kind of answers.
0: Sure. You? Sure. Both of them. So uh, I want to bring you back to that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but thank you, Roger. Pretty good to hear from you. And I appreciate that question. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I mean, I, I was in that business and I was a BP branded Store Our buddies at um, Chase Oil, uh, that's how I got to know Charles and Chase so well. We, um, we worked through the process of building and branding a, a store. BP would not put their brand or flag on uh, the property unless they were convinced you could sell X number of gallons every week or month or, or whatever that quota was. Um, so I got real familiar, and I mean, I'm, I'm just the kind of person that I'm going to try to be in the middle of it and see what's going on here and, and what's going on there. I believe this, and I mean, obviously, BP says – our gas is better, has less contaminants. Shale says the same thing. Exxon says the same thing. Uh, some of the others have gone by the wayside. Um, I would argue that, that some of the companies Roger's talking about are still kind of sort of standard oil. You know, uh, the, the government breaks up the monopoly. The monopoly creeps up all these companies. The companies merge again 50 years later, and we've kind of got three or four, you know, major oil companies. I've always looked at it this way, and I think this is pretty accurate the the bp shale let's use those as an example the brands i do believe there's a little bit better product there but i don't think it's much um it's a little bit like bush and budweiser i mean it's beer one's a little cheaper than the other does it come off the top of the vat the bottom of the vat is it not as refined is it cheaper to make i mean yeah there's a reason it's cheaper it's cheaper to make. But but a lot of the problem that I believe in some of these brandeds is the the fee, the royalties, the um, you know, the the marketing money that you're co-opted into. In other words, you own a BP station, you benefit from the BP brand and all the national money they spend marketing. Well, there's worth two or three cent a gallon probably goes. So if Josh owns a, you know, a country store and he's unbranded and he's selling gas from whomever he can get the cheapest, um, I think my gas is probably a little bit better, but is it three or four or five cent better? Probably not, because the majority of that money is co-op money that goes to these big refineries to help them market their product as being uh, much superior. I, I believe Budweiser's a little bit better beer than Bush. I believe um, Exxon or Shell or BP is a little bit better gas than some of the um, what I'll call the independent brands, but, but I don't think there's much
1: difference at all. To answer your question, Roger, the cheapest one. Find me the cheapest one. My car seems to run the same either way.
0: Well, technology of the automobile. Yeah. You know, um, so for me. Yeah. Octane levels and things like that. Hadn't, uh, I think the cars have adjusted. There was a day when you had high performance, high horsepower, what we call muscle cars, V8s and things like that. They needed octane. These cars today don't need any, anywhere near the octane that they did in days gone by. Take a break. Back in a few. So I guess what I'm saying? Let's answer Roger's question the best we can. And Rev just said it. I mean, whatever's the cheapest. That's where I am now because gas has gotten so expensive. Uh, I mean, gas has outpaced income and inflation. Anyway, um, I believe that the branded gas, I'll give an example. When I was branded with BP, I was about $0.06 higher per gallon than some of the unbranded, some of the independent brands. Um, I believe my gas was probably $0.03 better. And the other three cent was probably in marketing to kind of fly that flag mm. and make sure the world knew who BP was. Um, I would argue, I and mean, I don't know the inner workings of uh, NBA or Anheuser-Busch, but I would imagine they consider Bush to be a lesser beer than Budweiser. And I guess it's cogens and contaminants and distillery and refinery and all those words. Um, I'll give an example. The most, because I care about my health and well-being. If I'm going to drink alcohol, well, I mean, in the winter it's different. I mean, I'll drink a good bourbon uh, in the winter, but in the summer, if I'm going to drink, I don't like the calories of beer. I don't care how light it is; it's still a bunch of calories. Unless it's 100 degrees outside, I'm not, I'm a, like I'll take a drink of um. You ready? A drink of good vodka. And the reason the good vodka is, and I'm talking about high end vodka. Well, I mean, there's no there's a lot of high end bourbon because bourbon would be. I mean, there there's a craft to it. There is no vodka trail. I mean, there's a bourbon trail. It's stories and it's you know, uh, distilleries and it's the story of Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and Maker's Mark, and then you get some of the premium and some of the premium bourbons. Pappy. Well, I mean, I, yeah, Happy Van <laughs> Winkle got a good buddy at Mickey Finn's, Rick Havacost, and he knows a lot more about this than I do, but he's convinced me that some of the really premium bourbons, I mean, there's a lot more effort given to that. Um, vodka is not, not a lot of calories. And the good vodka's is taking the, the distillery to the extreme, and it's got some of the um, the Kojians out of it. So if you're somebody who doesn't want to drink a bunch of calories and you want to stay kind of sort of healthy, mean uh, the best thing to do is don't drink any alcohol at all. But, but if you're going to choose to partake, then drink um, really high-end. The high, uh, Grey Goose, uh, they don't sponsor our show. They may <laughs> should. Uh, but that would be uh, about as high-end. I mean, I know there are other names, but that would be uh, a better a better vodka. Um, and that's probably if you're going to drink diet pineapple juice or diet cranberry juice or whatever with, um, with, uh, with a better uh, vodka. But, but it's all about, I, I believe the branded gas has been refined a little bit more, has the cogens and the contaminants uh, taken out. Uh, and, and I'm thinking about a Vada beer and Bush. Is Bush on the top and Budweiser and Bud Light in the middle? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, and it may be just diversity of brand. You know, we got to market all these brands. We can't be a beer company that just makes one or two beers. we got to make a lot of other uh, different sorts of beers. But bourbon is, is such a unique drink. I mean, it really is. You're talking about the Civil War. I read uh, a story about Maker's Mark. And the guy that uh, the, 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 the great-great-grandson that eventually inherited and ran the majority of the business he said what motivated his great-great-grandfather was during the Civil War, the soldiers drank bad booze, and he wanted to make good booze, so he kind of, you know, some of the oak barrels and the craft and the distilling and the aging and all these other things that go into, into bourbon. Rev kind of jokes around with me. Uh, you know it's a big tailgate. We got a big tailgate tomorrow, and um, we got a big tailgate to celebrate. It's, it's weird. We, um, a lot of you know the story of my oldest son uh, being addicted to pain pills. Uh And he lost a good friend uh years ago, and we the the good friend of he is, as big a gamecock fans as we think we are, the good friend of he is, was an even bigger gamecock fan. So one year, time a year, we dedicate a tailgate and uh and kind of pay tribute to he and his family and uh, and we host that at our place and and Rev kind of Rev knows this. there's this bourbon that I get from Mickey Finns called Jefferson's Ocean. <laughs> We've talked about that over the year. And Rev, as I Rev and I have convinced ourselves, we can taste that salt.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: Well, it doesn't matter if we can or not. <laughs> We've convinced I ourselves. I know I did. We can taste that <laughs> taste that salt in the bourbon. And Jefferson, I mean, being a um, well, I mean, let, let me let me get this ready, ready, Jeff. I profess to be a Jeffersonian. <laughs>
1: <laughs> profess. Yeah,
0: I, I declare, I identify yeah. as a uh, as an old school yeah. Jeffersonian. But um, uh, but Jefferson had an interest in booze. I mean, he loved French wine and he was kind of an innovator and an inventor and always looking for a better way to do X, Y, or Z. So Jefferson believed that if you put that bourbon in an oak barrel and you put it in the bottom of a ship, not only is the the bourbon going to come in contact with the oak barrel sloshing around in the bottom of that ship, it may, it may have a bit of a salty taste to it. And Rev and I have convinced her, I taste the salt.
1: Sure did. I taste it.
0: Now, if you drink enough of it, you start quoting the Declaration of Independence nonstop. <laughs> so you got to be real careful that you don't get on other people's nerves uh, by saying live liberty just over and over <laughs> right. and over again.
1: Right. But I do enjoy the, the bigger, the celebration, bigger tailgates that you have at your spot because you know occasionally you will bring out the ocean. Tomorrow we'll have some ocean. Good.
0: And we'll have some oysters. Um, that's the only time I. And I've... we'll have some barbecue. Yeah. And, but we're, we're, we're doing it to once again pay respect and tribute to a family who lost a child. Far, far
1: too young in life. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on.
4: Hey,
5: guys. Uh, well, Ken, I want to tell you, uh, my family comes from a long list of slave owners, probably going back a thousand years or more. You know, my mother's side of the family, uh, she was Comanche Indian. You know, they grew up there in the Texas area, and uh, they took slaves, and uh, they took white slaves too, you know, and then uh, did, uh, did other Indian slaves. But I, uh, I don't recall my mother owning a slave or my dad. If they did, they didn't tell me. And, uh, and neither my grandparents. And you know, it says all white people are racist. I mean, all white people are racist. I find it amazing that how many people that died total North and South in the Civil War. And
0: if you talk about everybody, wasn't it close to a million. Nearly a million. You're correct.
5: Well, it's hard to believe. <laughs> and you got to figure, you know. Majority of those, uh, people were, were, uh, Northerners because everybody knows they can't shoot a dick. So, uh, that was a whole lot of daggone racist folks that, uh, got themselves killed over, on uh, over slavery. Makes you kind of wonder. And I tell you another thing too, uh, I think, uh, the, the percentage was like maybe 1% of the people that, uh, lived in the South, uh, old slaves, or was it maybe a little bit more than that? You know the number
0: it's two? less than 5%. I mean, I've seen it at 2%, 3%, but I've never seen it over 5%. And,
5: uh, and I'll tell you this, uh, I bet you, and a lot of people get mad and I can give a rats behind. I bet you there were a lot of white folks living in South Carolina that barely lived much better than the slaves back then. I mean, that wasn't a really... Yeah, that wasn't, you know, people think everybody was so prosperous. They were not. I mean, most of our history, mankind has suffered. Most of our history of mankind
3: has been hungry,
5: you know, and, and you can serve them. And most of our history back mankind has been poor. But, you know, uh, but I do tell you this, I don't see anybody. Everybody wants to talk about all of the bad white devils what they did, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, even 50 or 60 years ago. But nobody wants to talk about white people being murdered daily and weekly. I mean, you had know, over ten black kids beat this little white boy to death in Las Vegas, and man, if you could, the only way you could get uh, to hear about that is if you could read smoke signals somewhere. Because it sure hasn't been in any mainstream media. I haven't heard any of our uh, African American callers calling in to say how upset they are about all. Uh, White people being murdered by black folks. I guess, I guess the white folks deserve it because they're all racist. And maybe they said something mean. Yeah, I looked at the little boy that got beat up in Las Vegas. Might be like, what it could be my little boy? You know, he looked like a skinny little kid. He they couldn't, never been in a fight in his life. And he got beat to death. But nobody gets mad about that because I guess if you get mad about that, you're a bad or racist. And I uh, ever you know, where are, where is the black outrage? where white folks get beaten to death. Now, if a black person gets beaten to death, which is rare, damn rare, because if it wasn't rare, you would see it on the news every time. On Facebook, anything remotely resembling racism is all
4: over. You
5: remember when they had that fight on the dock in Alabama? Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. You know, black kid gets, uh, gets uh, murdered by a cop? Everywhere. Cities city's burned down the whole nine yards. So it goes back to the whole thing. Where are the Palestinians and their outrage about what uh, what's going on going on with these uh Jewish the Jewish folks to be getting raped and murdered and all? Where is their outrage? Why is it all you know? I mean, why is always the odors put on us to be outraged? I like for some other people to be outraged about some of their actions instead of white folks always having to be outraged about our actions.
0: Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Hour number two on this Friday morning. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there.
1: Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning. You're on.
6: Hey, good morning, fellas. I had a whole different topic today. Talk about the playing devil advocate when it comes to cancer. And I believe we, um, we agree the people getting getting hoodwinked uh, when it comes to cancer. But I clear, Bree just threw me off, Bree. He just threw me off. First of all, I need some kind of Evidence supporting the number of people that own slaves since y'all saying it was one or two percent. I need evidence on that. Uh, you asked Ken one time about the problem between Jews and Blacks. Well, the one thing that Breeze brought up: the Jews supported the slave ships, and they own most of the plantation houses. Of course, if you white and you and you on a plantation, you're not the head man. You basically like a manager of, of a store they owned them plantations. So a lot of white people back then were just running the plantations. And you talk about reading and writing, but most people couldn't read and write back then. Most soldiers that went to war had 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 somebody read their letters to them because they couldn't read and write. The reason that Black people couldn't read and write is a part of control, the whole part of slavery. We had our own language, and they wouldn't let us speak our language because they could control us if we spoke a different language. But um, the thing about slavery, yeah, everybody was... A lot of people tried slavery, but the black people was the only ones that, they didn't say it, was good at slavery. I mean, white people could out on the sun long. They didn't work hard. They weren't that strong. They weren't fast. So not a good slave. They tried everybody and found that the black man, the original man, was the best at that too. Not even, not even just sports. But not everybody talking about Carolina had slaves. But when it comes to the Jim Crow era, everybody participated in that. I was thinking myself the other day. How many houses in South Carolina, Georgia, right now, in their attic, got a folded up KKK uniform? There was no great uh, uniform burning or whatever. A lot of houses in Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina got Klansmen suits sitting there in the attic, waiting, I guess, waiting for one day, though. But tell Breeze, too, that black people do not own the media. Whatever you see for black people or about black people, we have no ability to put that on the media. We lucky that y'all put right the king on the media. If it for that, then well, uh I'm sure most of America would swear out that the cops wouldn't beat a man that bad. Tell Bree it's called an idiot box for a reason. Cause idiots look at it and they believe it. You gotta seep through whatever. But uh that's about it. Just tell Bree we don't own our own media. And I had something to say about cancer. I believe we are getting weak by cancer. If you ever play devil advocate about cancer, we never say, look at this country who have a low cancer rate and follow what they're doing because that country maybe don't do microwaves, don't do AC, don't do so many things that give us cancer and don't have a pharmaceutical company that's making billions and billions and billions of money off of cancer. Why would they find a cure if we having NFL teams raising money, marches raising money, everybody raising money to just a uh, fight cancer, to cut it out of your body, to chemotherapy or whatever, why aren't we saying, look at other countries when it comes to healthcare. Why are their numbers of cancer so low? Maybe it's third world. Maybe they ain't got all these technologies that we got that we got to spend money on. That's the reason why they know what's giving us cancer, but it, it, it it'll disrupt America so much from the, process, from the medical uh, people that make so much money off of it to technology. It could be the AC air. It could be the, the, uh, the uh, microwaves. But whatever it is that gives us all this cancer, they would rather us uh, die from cancer and, and they try to cut it out and cure it than to tell us the truth and stop it that but, way.
0: Thank right, Anthony, so you, Anthony, appreciate that. Yeah, covered a lot there. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I can't I can't speak for everybody. I mean, you know, some of these facts. Um, I think Shelby Foote says very often that he spent 20 years trying to better understand the Civil War. Now he's a Southern man, so the media automatically said. He's probably a Confederate apologist. He's not that. I mean, he's a serious man that tries to explore for, from A to Z, you know, the storyline of the war, the reasons uh, of the war. I mean, I, I'm 100,000% opposed to slavery. The, for, for one man to believe, for one human being to believe they have the right to own as property another human being is just asinine. I mean, it's, I don't know how we ever got there, but we did. We did. Uh, human frailty, uh, the, the, the fall of man, the the flesh. I mean there there are there are a multitude of reasons. I mean, men have let other men down before. I mean, we historically have always had that element about us. But I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna allow people to convince me that white guilt is my retribution. I mean that's my only path to redemption. Uh i I've, I've said very candidly, I'd love to know why my great-great-great-great-grandfather decided to fight in the, in the civil War in the heart of the, uh, the Confederacy. I, I don't have any idea if he had slaves. I mean, my family doesn't come from affluent. I mean, we weren't. Uh, m- most of my people were farmers and sharecroppers and, and uh, owned very, very little land. I do know that because I've researched um, that enough. But a, an ancestor of mine died in Chancellorsville. And I'd like to know. I mean, at the age, I think 33 years old is this when he died. I got a picture of his headstone here. I had a buddy of mine who knows how to do this far better far better than I. But, but I, I don't think there's a mutual exclusive of one another. I am 1,000% in support of the Emancipation Proclamation and setting people free. But I, I'm not going to allow people to make my only path to redemption white guilt. I, I'm just not. I mean, I refuse to buy into that. Uh, and, 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 and kind of this, um you know, we versus y'all and y'all and them and you know how they are and you know how we are and we do our thing and they do their thing. It seems to me that modern and uh, in, in, in the modern intellectual, the modern Western intellectual believes that I must uh, c- kind of convict myself for what some of my people did. And I'm just not going to go down that road. I'm not guilty of that. And you're not going to convince me that I am. Is, is the is the legacy of the Civil War? Red said something interesting this morning. I didn't grow up in the South. I mean he he grew up in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, is the legacy of the Civil War a heavier burden for a southern boy or man to carry than others? I don't know how heavy it is for you to carry. Um, I wish the South had been on the other side. I wish the war had been about a radical government, a central planner. Um, taxation, and I do believe those were contributors. And that's why I've always said the Confederacy was complicated. I mean, it was very complicated. Now, the media says it was slavery and slavery alone. That's not the truth. That's just simply not the truth. A lot of Southerners believe that the Northerners wanted to carry our country in what they perceive to be a radical direction, and they want to know part of that. That is a part of the story. But as it relates to slavery, I am 1,000% opposed, but I'm not going to allow you to make my only path to redemption white guilt. Let's go to the phone.
1: Rujan in Darlington. Good morning, Rujan.
0: Good morning, gentlemen.
7: Hey, uh Kim, one, of the, one of the greatest uh, minds that I've, that I've witnessed in, 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 in my lifetime is this guy by the name of Thomas Sowell. And he wrote a book called black rednecks and white liberals and he explains a lot of what happened in this in the south i mean does it does it extensively. you know he cites many 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 researchers and and folks that that uh that studied this stuff back back when you know in the in the 1800s Um, and a lot of this is not so much rooted you know in in you know you know, attitudes. It's, it's rooted in a liberal mindset that says that you are going to do what I want you to do and how I want you to do it, and I'm going to use any means necessary to convince you, even if I got to lie to you, even if I got to guilt you to doing it. And that's not that's that's not a that's that's not a, a Christian way of doing things. It's definitely not a conservative way of doing things. But it's how they do it, how they did it. You know, they they've got uh, you know the black community convinced that basically all white people, all white conservatives, you know, are evil, you know, and the only, the only way that they can move it is through the hands of a, you know, of a, of a white person, you know, I mean, you know, I said, I said back in, oh gosh, 2010 that that the only, the only connection that Barack Obama has to America is through his white mother. And she's, and her and her and his dad were, were I mean, they were, they were staunch liberals, you know, so it was his grandmothers, <clears throat> so, you know, we got to get out of this mindset of thinking that anytime something happens, you know, uh, to a black person that, that, you know, is, is done to them by a white person, especially if it's a cop is, is racism, I mean, you got to look at all the facts and we're not trained, you know, particularly in the black community. We're not trained to look at the facts. We don't. We just. It's just not. I mean, the only fact, the only things that we look at is, is, is you know, this man is white, this man is black, this man did something, this man reacted, and now you got a whole big mess, and we got to get away from that.
0: Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number, and this is where you get in trouble when you go down this road, because in America today. Um, I mean, if you're deemed a racist, you're done. And, and I mean, th- there aren't many things that I'm nervous about. But when I start talking candidly about race and race relations and the Civil War and, uh, you know, and Rev's question, um, you got to be real, I mean, you got to walk a fine line. You got to be very careful. You got to be more careful than you should. And, and I, you know, Rujan's not still on the phone, but I'd love to know how Rujan is received. Because he doesn't spout. Some of, some of the mainstream uh, narratives. I mean, uh, you know, an African-American listening to Thomas Sowell and, and what he has to say, one of the great thinkers, black, white, red, green, yellow, doesn't matter. Thomas Sowell is one of the great thinkers. He's an economist. He understands, uh, you know, the, 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 the financial side of our economy. But, but he's, I mean, he talks a lot about dismantling America, and he blames Barack Obama. And, and I've said this on the air, and I'll say it again, and I'll stand by it. We did a post-mortem on the Biden president's excuse me, the Obama presidency, well, same thing, um, (laughs) that we should have done as a precursor. We should have explored and investigated who this very radical person was, and we would have found him to be deeply, deeply racist and very anti-Semitic. And I stand by that. Uh, do, Do you believe that race relations in America today are better since Barack Obama got elected? I know people in my world, I'll never call names, I know white people in my world today that are more afraid of blacks than they've ever been because of Twitter. They'll see these things on Twitter and it disturbs them. And it's normally a white person being attacked by a black person. I'm sorry. I mean, that's just the truth. Now, Twitter is owned by Elon Musk. He chooses to not, you know, uh, present the mainstream media. Um, And I think that's what Breeze is getting at uh, this morning. But I know people today that aren't racist at all. And they're nervous about going certain places at certain times because they've seen some of these some of these things on Twitter but if you start down that road the next thing you know you're a racist you're you're basically ostracized or excommunicated and you're you're out there on an island uh, by yourself but the only way to get to the bottom of better race relations in America is to believe that everybody's created equal and, and stop trying to you know um Build an economy based on giving one person an advantage over, over another person. That's kind of what Thomas Sowell talks a lot about. And he basically says, I'm, I'm not an African-American. So I'm not saying, well, I know what it's like. Because I don't know what it's like. I don't have any idea what it's like. But Thomas Sowell says that basically the left and the media are playing African-Americans and they're allowing themselves to be played. That's Thomas Sowell, not Ken. Thomas Sowell says that over and over and over again. And he says, as part of dismantling America, Barack Obama wanted to convince, you know, uh, African-Americans that your problem, your plight in life, your struggles are not your own. but I mean, they're because the white man has built a system that is intentionally trying to keep you from prospering or progressing. Once again, that's not my theory. That is one of the great African-American intellectuals of the last 50, 75 years. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the. Do we have Evan Brown?
1: Uh, he's not on. Okay,
0: that. somebody yep. on the phone. Yep. Let's go there.
1: Rick and Sumter, listening to WDXY. Good morning.
8: Hey. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Listen, man. Your topic today is right in my wheelhouse. But on my way to work, going through a little community called Stateburg, I just passed a big, beautiful plantation house. Used to be owned. Um, it was used to be named Wisdom Hall, and. The third largest slave owner in Sumter County lived there. He was a very prosperous man, owned a pew in my church, but a family pew. But he was also a free black man, a guy named William Ellison. Mm. And the magistrate of Sumter County declared him a gentleman, and poor whites had to step aside when he came down the sidewalk, tip their hat and call him sir.
0: And this would have been what year, Rick? What, what, what time of, um, what time period?
8: Um, he owned the house during the 1850s. Okay. Interesting. And, yeah. He bought his freedom and was, he developed a patent for a certain cotton gin for long strand, Carolina cotton, and became very, very prosperous. He was a big supporter of the Confederacy. And when he saw things were going South, he liquidated and the family moved to Canada. Um hmm. uh, but one thing, uh, A couple of things kind of set me off this morning. Your one caller that said all of us in the Carolinas probably have a Klan robe up in the attic. Um, There was only one state where the Ku Klux Klan actually had real political power. Can you guess what state that was?
0: Please say not South Carolina.
8: No, sir. It was Indiana. Okay. Mm. Um, Up north. The the South was never a major political force here. Um, Pitchfork, Ben Tillman did use it to enforce what was called the Mississippi plan, but it was never a viable long-term political force here in South Carolina. Um, One other thing I would like to mention, you were talking about slavery and the history of it through a lot of cultures. Um, The one thing we did different here that was particularly evil, you know, in biblical days or in most countries, if I owed you money and was sentenced to be your slave, I did belong to Ken Ard, but my wife did not, my children did not, and I generally worked for you, but I went home at night. We introduced the generational slavery over here.
0: Interesting. Hmm. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Uh, that's a guy that's well-versed, well-studied, and uh, in a controversial subject we decided uh, to touch on this morning. I want to shift gears real quick, and we'll get back to that discussion. Fox News Radio's Edmund Brown. Is in Miami. He's with us this morning. Evan, good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about the way voters feel. Um, Biden is running on Bidenomics. Some Democrats are saying, whoa, let's not do that um, <laughs> because I don't think voters are supportive of the economy and particularly the inflation part of uh, the
2: economy. Do we have any idea how the voters feel, Evan? Well, we have a new Fox poll that will tell us uh, something that overall 78% uh, rate the economy negatively and a majority think the worst is not over. Uh so that uh, that is certainly telling. Uh and if we kind of break it down by party voters, um you know, twice as many uh, uh these days uh, view the economy as as not turning the corner yet. Uh, about 67%. So uh, and that includes most Republicans. About eighty-four percent say the worst is not over, and seventy-seven percent of Independents say the same thing. And uh, Democrats, it's not as bad, but it's not good for Joe Biden. Forty-six percent, so it's almost half, say that the worst is not over yet. Uh, and the majority of Democrats who responded to our poll, about fifty-nine percent, are still are, are are insisting the economy is in horrible shape, and most Democrats. 84% who responded to our poll are worried about inflation. And inflation is proving itself once again to be a universal detriment that you can't kind of spin that away based on what party you like or don't like. Because if you have to choose between eggs and milk as opposed to getting both eggs and milk because the prices are so high and you've got to make choices with your money, there's no explaining that away any other, you know, in any other direction, and and that that hits people right in the pockets, and that's when the ever reliable James Carville had once said, "It's the economy, stupid," uh, and you know that that is just ringing true yet again. Very well explained, Evan. Thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day.
0: You too. And um, yeah, there's not a Republican price for hamburger meat or a Democrat price for gasoline. It is uh what it is josh can you get me in cue real quick i want to go back rick Rick made some very interesting points um rick normally says i want to take exception with you (laughs) and that kind Mm -hmm. of gets me stimulated Mm -hmm. a bit you know i I enjoy that i really and truly enjoy uh, i want to take an exception with something um you said i try to stir this conversation and uh stimulate some sort of a response out there um talking about thomas soul rujan was talking about i would argue one of the preeminent intellectuals, black, white, red, green, doesn't matter to me. But but he does have a lot to say about slavery and white guilt. We were talking about white guilt a second ago. Josh, if you don't mind, let's go to Q. And here's Thomas Sowell basically asking a question, should whites apologize for slavery or not? Stick with me for a second. I mean, I'm, I'm reading some words here. The clerk just read, for the first time ever in this body, what we should have done a long time ago, an apology
9: for slavery and the Jim Crow laws, which for a century after emancipation deprived millions of Americans their basic human rights, equal justice under law, and equal opportunities. Today, the Senate will unanimously
10: make that apology.
11: Great injustice was woven into the fabric of our nation. Slavery and the racial, segregation that followed, have left a tragic legacy that divided this country in the bloodiest war we have yet known. It is a legacy that still affects each and every one of us this day.
10: What we were saying here in the United States Senate today is that a wrong was done. Wrong of slavery was done. A wrong of slavery was done by the federal government of the United States of America. The wrong of segregation was done by the federal government of the United States of America. And we acknowledge that, uh, we uh, say it was wrong, and we ask for forgiveness for that.
0: Stick with me for a second there. You you can't see the visual here. Can they hear me, Josh? You can't see the visual here, but this is, uh, you know, African Americans standing up and whites kneeling, uh, I guess asking for forgiveness, you know, for... um, uh, I mean, I don't know if any of those, well, I mean, I know none of those African-Americans are slaves, none of these uh, white people were slave owners, but this goes along with the white guilt. And Thomas Sowell talks a lot about um, that, that reality. Let's get to Soul here if I can find him. Uh, here we go, okay. Here's Dr. Sowell.
12: Public apologies to people who are not owed any apology have become one of the many signs of the mushy thinking of our times. So are apologies for things that somebody else did. Among the most absurd apologies have been apologies for slavery by politicians. For one thing, slavery is not something you can apologize for, any more than you can apologize for murder. If someone says to you that he murdered someone near and dear to you, what are you supposed to say? No problem, we all make mistakes? Not bloody likely. Slavery is too serious for an apology, and somebody else being a slave owner is not something for you to apologize for. When somebody who has never owned a slave apologizes for slavery to somebody who has never been a slave, then what began as mushy thinking has degenerated into theatrical absurdity, or, worse yet, politics. Slavery has existed all over the planet for thousands of years, with black, white, yellow, and other races being both slaves and enslavers. Does that mean that everybody ought to apologize to everybody else for what their ancestors did? Or are the only people who are supposed to feel guilty the ones who have money that others want to talk them out of? This craze for aimless apologies is part of a general loss of a sense of personal responsibility in our time. We are supposed to feel guilty for what other people did, but there are a thousand cop-outs for what we ourselves did to those we did it to. Back in the 1960s, when so many foolish ideas flourished simply because they were new, A New York Times columnist tried to make the case that we were all somehow responsible for the assassination of President Kennedy. That was considered to be deep stuff. It made you one of the special folks when you believed that, instead of one of the rest of us poor dumb slobs who believed that the man who shot him was responsible. For more than a century, the intelligentsia have been trying to get us to focus on the root causes of crime, supposedly created by society instead of locking up thieves or executing murderers. If some people don't have the money or the achievements of others, that too is society's fault, in the eyes of those for whom personal responsibility is an outmoded idea. Personal responsibility is a real problem for those who want to collectivize society and take away our power to make our own decisions, transferring that power to third parties like themselves who imagine themselves so much wiser and nobler than the rest of us. Aimless apologies are just one of the incidental symptoms of an increasing loss of a sense of personal responsibility, without which a whole society is in jeopardy. The police cannot possibly maintain law and order by themselves. Millions of people can monitor their own behavior better than any third parties can. Cops can cope with that segment of society who have no sense of personal responsibility.
0: I mean, he goes on and on, but I mean, you, you get the concept. I mean, and, and I guess the question I'm asking is, what is a white person today apologizing to an African American for? If you've not personally wronged that person, let's say Rev's a white guy, and there's an African American gentleman in our in our lobby, does Rev owe that African American an apology? To me, doesn't. I mean, I think the absurdity of that—that that some way, somehow, Rev. In 2024 or 23, who's never owned a slave, an African American who's never been a slave, and Rev's going to apologize? I mean, we're doing that all over the country. I mean, in some of these prestigious elite universities, they're encouraging this. I mean, they're kind of giving extra credit for student bodies who participate in kind of the kneel down to the bow down. It's the absurdity of that. It's kind of um nobody's responsible for anything any longer. And if somebody has a a kind of um, if they ended up in a lesser place than somebody else, society's to blame. And and that's the the absurdity. That's what I said earlier. And I'll say this again: I'll never defend slavery. I'll never apologize for it. It's not my place. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Good morning, Charles.
13: Good morning. You know, um, back in the early 60s, before he was governor of California, Ronald Reagan said it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's that they know so many facts that aren't true. And uh, I, I just, I had Sheriff Hudson's phone number punched in here. I was going to call him about this stuff, but I thought I'd call you first. I've been up in the attic, and someone has stolen the KKK stuff. Um, out of my attic. There's nothing there. I did find a boombox. If y'all know where I can find 22D batteries this morning, I, I got a nice boom box I found. <laughs> but no KKK stuff. My great-great-grandfather fought for the Confederacy. He died long before I was born, so I don't know what the reason was, but I can tell you that going back generations, none of my family ever owned a slave and it's fairly obvious most of us can say that because the number of families that owned slaves was in the low single digits three or four percent it wasn't 90 percent like some people want you to believe my last point is Roujan sent a letter to the editor this week of the newspaper very intelligent very well thought out um very good letter to the editor. We need more Rougeons in the world. Um, and uh that's that's my comment today. I hope you all have a great day.
0: Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Um let let's let's go to, I mean I think this is important. I mean I've said this before and it and it really plays into today's narrative, Josh. There's a there's a there there's more anti Semitism in the American political left than there has been in my lifetime. Now, I don't know the history of the American political left. I'm always careful to say, I, I think I know what I know, but, but there are certain things I don't know. Camp had a great line in a the song, um, I, there are a lot of things I know and a lot of things I don't know. But, but it seems to me that right now in America, there's more of an anti-Semitic belief or, or, or tendency in the American political left than there ever has been. Well, I mean, if that what's cause and effect, I mean, if, if, if there are, if I'm right, and I think I am, that there is a, a k- kind of a heavier dose of anti-Semitism in the American political left, where does that come from? Well, who's the most prominent liberal and elected in America today in the Western world? It's Barack Obama. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And it, I think it still goes back to Obama. I've said this for a handful of years after reading a couple of books that I think should have been written and read before we elected Barack Obama president. He was a radical. I mean, he was an absolute radical. He was a Saul Alinsky disciple. He's a he's a socialist. He may be a communist. I don't know. But I think when it comes to the cultural aspects of, of our country, he wanted to transform America. He said that out of his own words. I mean, he wanted to transform our nation. This We are the ones we've been waiting on. And as part of that, he was not talking about redistributionism and collectivism, and socialism, and communism. He was talking about other ways than that. He's talking about culturally and societally changing our country. And if you read what I've read, and I'm not talking about uh, Salon.com and some, you know, or, or some, I don't know, CNN interview with somebody who knew Barack Obama when he was in I'm talking about people who really uh, did a, an extensive and deep dive, real journalists, doing real journalistic work. And they've landed in a place that he is very racist and very anti-Semitic. And I think when you look at America today, do you believe race relations in America today are better than they were before Barack Obama? I'll say something controversial. I think Barack Obama has convinced a generation of African Americans, not all, but a certain percentage of a generation of African Americans to dislike white people. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And if I believe it, why wouldn't I say it? Why would I be afraid of some censor or some bureaucrat or some government agency? I mean, I believe that in my bones. I believe Barack Obama has convinced and coached a percentage of a generation of African Americans to deeply dislike white people. Now, do I believe Twitter's an outlier? Do I believe black people wake up every day looking for a white guy to beat up? No. But it happens at a much higher percentage than the inversion does. Why is that? I mean, is that because of slavery? Is that because of, um, I don't know, some degree of resentment that African Americans have about the system that they believe is unfair to them? And you lash out at the white guy because he's ran or been in charge of the system forever today? Well, let's have that debate. I mean, let's have a conversation about that. But, but I go back to what I said earlier, and this is where I agree with Thomas Sowell. I am totally opposed to abortion. I'm not going to apologize for it. It's our history. It's who we were. And and are we trying to get better? Of course we are. But but I, I don't want the Obama influence to lead that charge because I think he's a dangerous man. And I think we're seeing it up close and personal so some of the uh, political instability, some of the cultural instability, some of the societal instability. And I believe personally can't prove this. I believe when you elect a radical, an absolute radical to be your president, your country has a chance to be radicalized. And I think to some degree, the Obama effect has radicalized what what we always perceive. That's why I don't understand when somebody says Trump scares me. Why? He's too radical. I mean, he's too out. What is, what is radical about Donald Trump? I mean, he says things politicians don't normally say, but what about Trump's policies is radical? What about his... Uh, his attitude toward government is radical. I mean, he's a big spender. That should make the Democrats happy. He's a a deregulator and a pro-business guy. That should make the Republicans happy. Nothing radical about Trump. But every move he's ever made has been deeply, deeply investigated and reported on. We never did that with Obama. We still don't know who this cat is. I mean, he's twice elected, came from nowhere, like a rocket ship an unbelievable generational political talent. There's no denying that. As somebody who's run for office before, there's an admiration I have for how good he's at it. As we say in the country, he's damn good at it. I mean, he's as good a candidate as I've ever seen in my life. You ready? He's better than Reagan. I don't know that I've ever seen a more capable, I didn't say qualified, a more capable political candidate than than Barack Obama. Rev's nodding his head mm-hmm. in agreement. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's like you take a a machine. Can we create? Can AI? Because that was a Thomas Sowell AI. Can we take AI and invent the perfect political athlete? Yeah, that's him. I mean, that's the guy. But he was a radical, and we didn't know anything about him then, and we don't know anything about him today unless you're willing. To try and read some of the postmortems that have been written about his presidency. I think David Garrow and David Samuel, if I'm not mistaken. There are a couple of books out there. The Obama Factor is one of the books. And Garrow and Samuel do what journalists should do. This guy wants to be president. Let's find out who he is and what he's about and where he comes from and, and what he believes in and what he stands for. We didn't do any of that. He's a black guy. It's time to elect a black guy. Yeah, but he might be radical. Well, he says he's a centrist. I mean, imagine the arrogance to run as a defender of same-sex marriage when you know in your heart how radical you are. But he knew that America didn't know. And he knew our mainstream media didn't have the guts or gumption to find out exactly who he was. Too many checks and too many boxes for liberal la-la land. Take a break. Back in a few. It takes Mondays to make Fridays, Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. 937 Once again, you can like what we do or not, but we do it differently than a lot of others rev gets nervous about that if mean, he doesn't say much but i think at times he thinks we should really delve into the two or three topical issues of the day but i've always pushed back and say yeah but i mean there's there's a thousand spots you can go and find you know that story that 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 nugget of information i i just kind of always and i think he'll give me credit for this if you callers are interested you'll let us know i mean if we if we well, kind of get off the beaten path and talk about something that's not real Real timely, I mean, if the phones don't ring and you folks are silent, we know to move along and find something else a, a bit more interesting. But I think so, when
1: you find the perfect balance, the balance of, you know, the political news of the day, because that's what your listeners are tuning in for to this radio station, right? So you and, find a balance of that, and then you give them the extra, and then you've got a well-rounded show of variety, And
0: right? you would agree the segue is important. And, and the reason that the, the segue is important, we're talking a lot about war. What we're yeah, talking a lot a tie, about yeah tie, i mean yeah. we're talking about you know israel and hamas and ukraine and and uh and russia and i went back yesterday and confirmed some of the numbers uh this is a meatloaf delegation hour two of three ain't <laughs> bad um we got representative Lowe, and we've got this other guy who, who's this guy rev who's this guy you we have seen him seen in, in a several while weeks? yeah the good-looking guy senator mike rickenboss with us representative jordan had a court date, not him, but somebody. <laughs> somebody he's representing. we don't know that. We're assuming <laughs> that he's there as a hired gun, and not um and not in trouble himself. But uh, yeah, the, the two or three ain't bad. Um, one of the interesting points we made this morning, and I can't get it off my mind. And we got a very diverse group of people here. Mike, you're from originally. Uh your, your original hometown. Lufton, Ohio. Okay, you're at the same neck of the woods as yeah, Rev. Yeah. Rev's a, a Cincinnati, Cincinnati boy. Two, two stoplights. Yeah, I got two more stoplights than you do in Pamplica, Yeah, right? there <laughs> you go. The, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, 100% of nothing is nothing as far as I'm um, <laughs> yeah. concerned. But, no, Philip and I were just talking, and, and let us, I mean, I don't want to stay on this subject, but Rev asked me, well, I mean, no, I just think it's interesting because we got different experiences here. Rev asked me a second ago or an hour ago, do you believe Southern boys carry a heavier burden in relation to the Civil War, than somebody who grew up in Cincinnati or or, or elsewhere. And Philip said, "Yeah, I mean, you do. You kind of think through why were we a part of that? I mean, what what about my great 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 grandfather led me? In? I mean, you know, see. So I do believe there's a complexity there that Philip and I have to deal with that neither Mike nor nor um nor Rev do. And I'm not I'm not saying it makes me understand it better." but, but I think Philip, I mean, the word we came up with, and I'll start with you representative low. I mean, there is a kind of a uniqueness to that burden that, that we carry about one of the darkest periods in our nation's history, history, but probably the one that defined us today.
11: I would say in the, in the South, you know, that I can't understand. Well, the North had slaves too, but the South, you know, had an abundance of them primarily because of the agrarian culture that we had. and, I can't understand why people would treat other people like that. It just, you know, doesn't have to be. But one or two generations from that, and we can't understand it. But it's certainly, slavery's been around. You read the Bible; it's been around forever. And uh, it, I can't uh, can't imagine how you'd put somebody through it. But I'd, I, I feel like, or well, maybe my ancestry had some. I can't find any slaves in my ancestry. We were poor folks. Does and all. that matter
0: to you? It so, does to me. I mean, I've done the same thing you've done. I've tried to go back. I had a great, 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 great grandfather die at Chancellorsville fighting for the South Carolina Confederacy, but I can find no record of him owning slaves. Is that important to you?
11: Yeah, I'm glad I didn't find any. You know, I, I mean, I don't know. I think uh, I'm, I'm a hard exterior but a soft interior like like most men kind of put on, you know, but I'm, I'm just glad that wasn't in my family, and, and so – I guess my guilt would be a lot less if I was a blue blood that had come and I, I was living in a an old you know house that had slave houses around it. I'd probably really feel weird. That that'd be a bad feeling to think that your ancestry was so greedy that they would enslave somebody to make money. Mike, when you moved from
0: um, the Midwest to the South, did 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 you bring that? Was there any? Okay, this is the side that fought you know, against the Emancipation Proclamation. And and once again, the Confederacy is complex. It's not. I mean, if you, if you give yourself the the time it deserves, you'll find that Confederacy was unbelievably complicated. I mean, I, you know, a lot of Southerners believed that the North wanted to carry the country in a radical direction. They didn't want any part of that. But slavery was at the center of that. You're an African-American male. You come from the Midwest down south. D- d- did you think about that when you came down? Yeah, that's a great question Uh I didn't and I believe the the reason
14: I didn't is race relations are complicated anywhere in the country. So many folks if you look at me and you say all right he's a, he's a a black male but with the last name Rickenball it should give most people a pretty good indication. Eh, not a lot of black Germans running around there, right? You just don't <laughs> see a bunch of them. So for those who don't know, I was born to a black woman but I was given put in the foster care system then given up for adoption so The family that adopted me is as lily white as you can find. They're white Germans from a small rural farm town. So raised in an all white town where there was 1% of the high school was black and that was me, you know, there's an own complexity of race. I mean, did I ever have somebody drive down the street and say, you know, why are you here? And I'm eight years old. Why are you here? Well, I was the only one in town. Or go back to Africa. You, do you hear those kind of things anywhere in the country? You sure do. But what my father and my mother taught me is that you're not identified by your, your your race. You're identified by the kind of person you are, by your work ethic, by your character, by how you treat people, by your faith. So whether it's in a, in a small rural farm town in Ohio that's all white, or whether in the South where it's all black, what I've learned at a very early age is People are going to choose to treat you largely based upon what's going to be expedient and convenient for them, unless they're driven by a higher calling. And in my sense, you know, people of faith is what I've seen of all races come together to say, you know what, Jesus loved every one of us. So shouldn't we love every one of us? But, Mike,
0: aren't we nervous? I mean, somebody like me, I mean, I'm a white guy with a radio show in the deep south. There's no telling what I may say. But the one thing I'm careful about is that. Because that you can get yourself in wh- whether you intended to or not. I mean, we can beat up on this and beat up on that, but I'm always, I'm hardly ever guarded except when I go down that road because you can create a lot of problems, whether you meant it a certain way or not. No, that's exactly
14: right. And, and, and the same applies to me too. The, the cancel culture of today. And, and candidly, I put a lot of the onus on social media, the ability for people to have a microphone who have very little knowledge or information, who are able to espouse something or, or make an accusation, and it can go viral and, and catch fire and, and burn someone's entire career down. So, whether you could be accused of being a racist, or I could be accused of being an Uncle Tom, I've had people reach out to me. Ken has now I've been in a senator and said, "Look, you you're one of the most conservative." voting records of anyone in the Senate. You're a sellout. You're an uncle Tom, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You can call me what you want to call me, but it doesn't define me. Um, I think it's a wonderful distraction by the liberal left to try to make race such a hot button because I don't think the majority of us are racist. And if you look at pure statistics, you know, I'm an accountant and a business owner. I look at things very linearly. If you take murder, for instance, the Census data says that approximately 95 to 97 percent of the black people who are killed in this country are killed by other black people. Approximately 2 to 4 percent are black people killed or killed by white people. So statistically speaking, if we want to really talk about what's an issue for the black community, maybe we want to focus on the 95 to 97 percent that are killed by other black people and what are the origins of that? How do we stem that? How do we cure that? But that's not talked about nearly as much as did Ken Ard say something that might be a little racist or is Mike Rickenball as he a sellout Senator
0: because he's so conservative. And and Philip, I mean, you, you, I know you well enough. I mean, you you, you kind of speak your piece and you say what you believe and, and I do as well. But when it gets to that, you you have to be a little more careful.
11: Yeah. We tiptoe around race all the time. And if you ever try to get into a discussion to try to work on improvements and, you know, you start talking about, well, if so-and-so race would do this, then they would have a better outcome. And you you you, you get into generalities, and then that's always going to offend people the, the second that you start putting any prejudice into the discussion. That, that I prejudge something based on what I've experienced all my life. And so are we all prejudiced? You better be prejudiced, or you're going to get run over by a truck because every time a truck came and by and barely missed me, I had to prejudge. I've had to look twice before I crossed the road. And we've got to, you've got to involve a certain amount of common sense, you know, to, to get through life. So I've got a question. I don't know. Don't answer it if you don't want to. So if you could go back in time and you could say, all right, the first boat was headed over to Africa to bring slaves. Are you asking me or Rick and Bob? I'm I'm asking Rick and Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Anybody who wants to talk about it, you can call in and talk about it. It's a provocative, okay, continue, I'm sorry, Mr. Host, if you could So if you could have stopped that, but knowing that your lineage, you'd be here somehow, that your mom and pop would have somehow found each other, let's say, in Africa, would you trade living in Africa, growing up in Africa, and say that small village in Africa, Instead, and you could stop slavery and keep, but you would be living in Africa now. If if it didn't happen, then you you are where you're at now. Slavery happened; whatever happened in your lineage happened, and you are here where you are in Florence, South Carolina. What what would you take, Africa, or Florence? Yeah, I mean, I
14: I can understand the the genesis of the question, but it's an impossible one to answer because I've never lived that small village in Africa.
11: Well, you don't have a horn forward. I mean, you don't have a dealership. You, you know, you don't have a house over here at the lake. And everything changes. You're living in Africa in a small village. So we all, what I'm, my point is we've all been through stuff. We've all been through wars in our ancestry. We've been through terrible things. You read about them in the Bible. We got to where we are today because of millions of different circumstances that could have happened somewhere. Would you be happier in Africa? Or in America. Yeah, but
14: that's an awful lot like Jesus in the garden saying, Lord, if you would, will be done, remove this cup from me. Did he want to be crucified? No, he didn't. Now, the final end of that was our salvation. So at the end of the day, he chose the path that led to the salvation of mankind. But did he want the nails in his hands and his feet and the sword in his side? No, he didn't. So it's one of those where It'd be a wonderful utopia to say, like, well, if you could be this or it could be that, and they both turn out well, you know, which one would you have? But life isn't that clean or linear or, or clinical. I think Jesus is the best example of, he chose the path that ended up leading to the redemption of mankind, even though it was hard for him. But if he had it to do over again, he certainly would have, I think, in terms of if he had a better path, but it wasn't, a better path wasn't given. So hindsight, beautifully as it is, isn't an option I have.
0: But Ma, in the common, the common denominator in all of this discussion, the, the, the hypothetical, the unknown, the what if, at the end of the day, we're brothers in Christ. And we've accepted, as Philip said, that God allowed this very imperfect world to exist. And I end up where I do. And Philip ends up where he does. And Mike ends up where he does. But ultimately, our obligation to our faith is to not be racist, to not be prejudiced. To not I mean, Philip's exactly right. I mean, it's impossible. I, I like to say that in my life, I grew up in the Deep South. I'm a Southern country boy. I have seen racism every day of my life. I've never seen much hatred. I mean, racism was a very much a part of my life. The social fabric... uh, you know, uh, the blacks did this, and the whites did this, and the rich did this, and the poor did that. We, we silo societies, but I've always felt our only hope, our only promises in our faith, that, that God in heaven, for whatever reason, allowed Mike Rickenbaugh to not end up in Africa, but rather Ohio get adopted by. Explain that. Nobody can explain that. I mean, Philip can't explain how he ends up, yeah, where he ends up, and I can't explain how I end up where I end up. And I always say it's God's sovereignty, it's God's will, and it's God's allowing all these sophisticated things to happen in unison, one with another. And if we start trying to break it down, and and my, you know, Philip, and micro, and you're like me, I mean, all of us have busy heads. We kind of want to know more than we're probably capable of understanding. But but I've always felt to Philip's point with Mike, I, I just trust
11: God. You know. Well, I, yeah, but wait a minute. Now, if he were in Africa, most of those countries are 95 percent islamic in the northern part what's the chances that mike would even know christ at all if he were in africa the 95 percent in a small rural village where everybody in that village you know was, was islamic i mean what's the chances he would be christian or or be even similar to what he is right now and i know we're getting deep here but there are things that that happen in the world and we we have choices when we are alive we have our choices we can't change the past and what happened in the past. We can't live in the past. The what if was a weird what if. I know it, it it's your ancestor ancestors went through all this pain and suffering and everybody did in in this world. It, to get where we're at now and where you're at now, where a black man can own a multiple dealerships and be well respected elected to the senate is is an incredible feat, right? It's a testament to America. Yes, I mean it to is. me,
0: it's a testament to our country, and and but I still think it's it's, it's also in combination with God's will. Yeah, and and, I
14: think uh, you're right, Ken, yeah. and it's God's will, and it's His grace combined with American opportunity of hard work and perseverance. And as I said yesterday at the Florence text, you know, celebration and gala that. What makes America wonderful is the opportunity you're given. You don't have to be the smartest or the most gifted or the most intelligent. Oftentimes, it's those who work
0: the hardest end up coming out on top. Right. Well explained. We, we got in the weeds. We'll, we'll, we'll straighten this out. We'll get back on, <laughs> on taxes are too high and government's too big. Take a break. <laughs> back in just a moment. 843 661 0937 philosophying on <laughs> Wake, up Carolina. You should have heard the off-air conversation. I mean, it's it's a it's a complicated matter, and as Representative Lowe, see how quick it got intense when you start talking about race. I mean, it gets really intense real fast, and it, it makes people not it doesn't make me because I'm stupid. It makes some reasonable people uncomfortable. I'm too dumb to be uncomfortable.
1: But you're right. That's not the typical talk radio fodder.
0: But I mean, but, it, but, but it's a central part of our nation, yeah. and, and and one of the great struggles we're trying to deal with. uh, and we're afraid to address because people get in trouble, especially elected
1: officials and public personalities. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe, in Florence, you are on with the delegation. Good morning.
9: Yes, good morning, guys. Uh, I guess not to answer for Senator Rickenbach, but uh, as to the question of, of being in an, an African village or in Florence, I'd say I'd want to be wherever Sharice is, Mike. <laughs> that, 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 that would be my determining factor. <laughs> Here, Joe, I 100% agree. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyways, um, I, I just want to say I'm one of those people that that love your show and and I've really kind of stopped listening to Hannity and and um, uh, Bongino because uh, whenever anyone calls in with a dissenting opinion, I've noticed that Sean and and Dan have become much more rude and intolerant of what of of the way they used to be. And so you needed to be applauded for your willingness to entertain every uh, point of view out there. And I appreciate that. Uh, Specifically talking about the racial one um, with regard to uh, President Obama, I think, you know, radical kind of depends on who the audience is. So when you're Donald Trump and you're challenging the status quo, you're bad radical when you're Barack Obama and you're playing into the status quo, you're good radical. And that's one of the things that I think uh, pits, uh, you know, good radical versus bad radical. The other thing that I think has always irritated me as an Italian American is that it seems like a lot of biracial uh, people like Barack Obama or uh, Tiger Woods, they kind of identify with the flavor of the month. So I think in 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 Obama's case, he wanted to identify as black. In Tiger Woods' case, he wanted to identify as white. And I think we need some definition. You know, uh, for example, uh, when I was in New York um, and dating a Jewish woman, um, and so I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Jewish American princess,
4: but
9: (laughs) but she she used to say that Jews were identified by the mother's religion. And so if the mother was Jewish, you were Jewish except that if the mother wasn't Jewish, they oftentimes made the mother uh, convert to Judaism. So I, I think we need some kind of rule. You know, does it matter, you know, which parent it is or who you're married to, but there's no consistency. And, and I think that, that they just play the race card as a political advantage. Uh, and and so, um, you know, that, that's kind of the the stuff I wanted to say after listening all morning. Uh, enjoy the heck out of the show. Keep it up, guys.
0: Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. So let's play off that. He brought up Barack Obama. And, and you know, we're talking about Ronald Reagan. We're talking about uh, so, some of these pop culture icons. I guess Tiger Woods would be absolutely a pop uh, culture icon. I mean, I've, I've told some of my black friends this. I'll say it over the air. Um, I've been around more black people than Tiger has. You know, and, and they look at me like, did you say that? I mean, are you careful? You better be careful saying that now. But, I mean, it's the truth. I, I'm not insulting anybody. I'm not intending to insult anybody. But, but I want to go back to Joe's point. In politics, we're impacted by certain forces. Um, Lowe has a world in and out of politics. Rick and Bob has a world in and out of politics. Some of those forces, parental forces, grandfathers, friends, football coaches, I mean, they kind of lead us. And 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 direct our paths to some degree. But once you step in politics, I have found that you try to find somebody who you like the way they conduct themselves. Some of what they believed in. Is there anybody particularly, Philip, that has helped shape your political view, your political dispositions, the way you carry yourself or conduct yourself at the State House?
11: Yes, it and it's an obvious one for me. It's my mother. My mother was from Kansas. She was a Republican before it was cool down here, and she shaped my politics and she shaped my life. Now I've strayed from all the goodness that she taught me. I, I, I could be a much better person if I, if if I could just resist the the world temptations and all. But she took me to church every Sunday, and my dad is the same way. I'm not not saying it, but she was Republican back before it was cool and loud and proud Republican. I mean, made that a part of her daily life. She's still in the Republican party. She goes to all the women's you know, auxiliary meetings, you know, all the time. So she's yes, very loud and proud. Mike. Yeah.
14: I think i go back to the first, the, per- the first person I paid attention to in politics. And I, I'm arguably was a nerdy kid. I, I was in the math and the numbers and my parents were so consistent in, in, in embedding into me about what work does to be the true equalizer of race. If you work hard and you get an education, you can lift yourself out of poverty. Because my parents didn't have much money. I barely had enough to, to really take care of the three kids. Um, so Ronald Reagan, I remember when he talked about trickle-down economics, and then the explanation was given to me by my parents, of, well, son, what that means is if you go ahead and you, you lessen the tax burden for those at the top and they're able to then lessen the tax burden on those beneath them. And they can pass that along because of the consumer identity of America. They companies want you to buy more. So if a government reduces their taxation and, and it is explained that it really resonated with me, you know what, uh, this is better for us in a small rural farm town, to have more money because we'll spend more money and we'll have more money to do stuff. So Reagan really made an impression on me with that. But the the pivotal point with Reagan was when he's, you know, I remember watching the tear down that wall. Uh, I get goosebumps now thinking about it because I had never seen a political figure be so strong and impassioned to do something that was the right thing to do, but didn't even affect Americans when he said tear down that wall. That was a big moment for me. We
0: ran behind in the first segment. Josh, you give me the break sign. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. This is put your legislator on the spot day. <laughs> so I'm gonna do it again. These guys will put one another on the spot. So I'm gonna put them on the spot. There's a debate within the Republican Party today at the highest level and I'm talking about the presidential cycle, to try and uh, play this out to the end, or is it time to decide, hey, this is our guy? No more debates. I mean, the polls come in, and they never change. I mean, it's Trump by 40 points, Trump by 38 points, Trump by 31 points. Um, you've got kind of a three-headed monster. you got DeSantis and Haley and Trump, but you take DeSantis and Haley and combine their totals, they're still 12 points behind behind Donald Trump. Drew McKissick was on the show yesterday and I asked Drew, is it time to circle the wagons? Is it time to say, okay, like him or not, here's our guy. Instead of having debates and beating up on one another for another couple of months, um, let, let's say Trump's the guy, and let's go to bat with him. What What do you say about that, Philip?
11: So if Alabama's playing North Atlantic today, and it's a 45-point favorite for, uh, for Alabama, do you just not play the game? You can't just not play the game. It's a game. We got it scheduled. It's a Republican Party. Anything can happen. I mean, anything can happen. Trump could pass away tomorrow. And whoever's kind of got the most momentum, who can pick that vote up, you never quit fighting until basically till the donors say, we ain't giving you no more money. That's, that's kind of how politics is. And the, the, you know, the federal side of it. Now here, in my side, you could walk neighborhoods and just wear your shoes out and talk all you wanted to. But if you're getting out there, you know, you, you're – ultimately your donors are going to decide how far you can make it in this system. Uh, and did you start looking silly and you start being embarrassed that you don't have the 2% and you drop out naturally on your own, but anybody in the top five would be an idiot to get out right now. So play it out, play it out. Okay. Mike. Yeah. I'm, I'm play it out.
14: Life's unpredictable and no one knows what tomorrow holds. So it's, it's good to have a bench because nobody's guaranteed. We got to be very careful in this country that we don't make the presidency a coronation to say, well, this is the person, right? If Trump's going to win and he's so far ahead, man, let it play out and let him win through the process instead of a
0: coronation of anyone. Let's go to one of the issues that Vivek Ramaswamy raised this week. Um, when, when When you underachieve, when there's a set of expectations and you don't do as well as we expected to do, Whose fault is that, Philip? Is it the candidate's fault, the consultant's fault? Is it the RNC's fault? I mean, who's to blame when Trump wins Kentucky by 29 and a Republican gubernatorial candidate loses by five? There's a lot of fingers pointed at Ronald McDaniel. You know that as well as I do. Uh, But but, but, uh, who is to blame when we don't meet expectations and underachieve?
11: You know, politics is an opportunistic thing. You've got to catch the right wind, the right current, at the right time with the right message, and, and a lot of things have to fall in your favor. But sometimes you go up against a, somebody just politically that's just a better speaker, a talker that reaches out, that touches people. And and you, you can't fight that current. It's just too much for you. They, they're so much better. It's like Rick and He is so much better a politician. I asked him a direct question about Africa or here. Did you get an answer? No, because he is great at just just sliding it off like a politician.
14: Phillip's such a guy, isn't he? Yeah, listen to him. All right. Yeah i pick it out. Because he I didn't get the answer he wanted, but <laughs>
0: <okay>. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and to, to Philip's credit, he didn't answer my question either. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he deflects. Yeah. yeah. So, see, it, it's tough to be a BSer. You know what I mean? I've, done I've sat on you all side of the table so I know exactly um, what's the price of eggs in China. I don't know. Gov is too big, spends too much money. Uh, but, Mike, I mean, you, you see where I'm headed. I mean, is it, um, is it your fault? Is it the campaign's fault? Do you go back and do a post-mortem and say, man, we should have done this? Or is it at times at a grand level, you depend on this party machine to do things successfully that you have no control over? Yeah,
14: it's I wish I could give the, the, the right answer on this because I'm not sure. There were elections lost last year that I have no concept of how we lost them. Uh, I take Arizona as a good example. And, and I told you this before the election. I thought Kerry Lake was one of the most articulate, professional well put together candidates and she had some sizzle and she had an, matters and she, and she handled the media, she handled, you know, contrarians like, and then she lost. Um, I, I couldn't figure that out. Now you've got other instances where there's flawed candidates. Uh, Herschel Walker, by all accounts was a flawed candidate. Um, and there was a lot of money behind him, but he was still flawed. But I think the greatest example I can give as far as sometimes if, again, accuse me of being over spiritualizing at times, When a door is shut, there's no man that's going to open it. And when a door is open, there is no man that is going to shut it. Carrie Lake had everything on her resume to be able to win the gubernatorial race in Arizona, and she still lost. And I don't think there's anything that I could see that she could have done different because she had the money, the fundraising, the machine. It just wasn't her time. I think it's God's providence is an element of it. We do all we can do. But then, at the end of the day, you got to say, "God, I give you this with open hands. If I'm to win it, win it. If I'm not, then
0: remove it." Philip, how how important is it for you to have a relationship with a local Republican activist?
11: Well, I think this show is probably the most important relationship I have. I think we reach more people, uh, you know, with with this show than any other way. I mean, I can send a mailer out, and it falls in somebody's hands for three seconds and it's thrown in the trash, you know? So nobody really reads a lot of that. And I say nobody, it's people that, that get into politics and all, but uh, you you need to keep the local people in your party uh, aware of how you feel. And, and so go into the meetings and being a part of that. And we have usually about 120 people or so. Big turnouts. Show up, pretty good turnouts, but that's, small potatoes. We we should have a thousand. We should be renting big auditoriums to help the movement. You, you don't realize, but Florence County is about 53% Republican. We're on the edge. It just doesn't take much. They're out there doing, uh, uh you know, efforts now to get people registered to vote. Well, heck, if they show up in certain places and, and register a bunch of Democrats, then we, we could lose the next time. And Sheriff Joy could be in danger on just a county-wide election. So grassroots involvement the republican party's involvement this show those are things that that are really more important than a, than a mailer and having money to mail out a mailer
0: so mike how do we turn 100 into 1000
14: yeah i think the, the community outreach is the most important element i mean mike page and larry hill and their team at the F florence county gop do a, such a tremendous job and they're doing more than they've ever done in terms of community outreach uh, having them at the booth and i went out there for the pecan festival They did Hispanic outreach uh, night last month. I was there for that too. Like they're trying to reach different segments of the community because the Republican conservative message does resonate with people who will listen. If you say what we're for is lower taxes, less government intervention, the ability to work, the integrity of the family, you're as a parent's right to choose what your children are going to read and learn in schools that you're not going to have to be forced to use pronouns like CRT is not going to be allowed. When you explain that to Hispanics and blacks and whites and Jews and go on down the line, the majority of those of us here in Florence County are like, you know what? Eight of those 10 I agree with. So I think the community outreach, I mean, I'd say in addition to the GOP, there's the listening sessions that are most impactful for us. I love this show. Um, I wish more people would call in because I love to hear from people, but the way Sharice and I, really circumvent the fact that some people don't feel comfortable reaching out is, you know, we've done now 30 of those listening sessions where we go to restaurants in Johnsonville and Pamplico and Coward and Scranton, and Atlanta and Timminsville and Florence and Effingham. And we just circle the district 30 times and just go up to people and they say, would you mind if we asked you a couple of questions? If you don't want to, that's fine. But what's on your mind? That's when you hear from people who will say, this is what's
0: important to me. When people feel they matter yep. and, and they want to believe their opinion, their opinion matters. We'll take a break. We'll be back on the other side with our meatloaf delegation. hour. two out of three ain't bad. Um, and we'll do some football picks. We would pick a women's basketball game, but that's already been played. <laughs> and We've already had that big, monumental women's basketball game that we Gamecock fans know is a much bigger deal than this boring, do-nothing football game that happens uh, a week from Saturday. Take a break. Back in a few. Six six one oh nine. I think Rev's sneaking in Springsteen Friday back on. us.
1: Oh, I am. I think I'm he's very subtly, <laughs> very, very very coyly. What did I have to do with that song being played right now, Josh? There is a disturbing trend here that I'm noticing. A lot of Bruce making his way back into the songs of the day. R- R- Rev's a rascal. You got to watch them rascals. You know how I'm rascals right. are, Josh. You got to watch those rascals.
0: And I think, I think our Rev is, I mean, in his, in his own very subtle way
1: reintroduced Springsteen. I, I walked writers. in here and heard you queuing that one up. I was like, oh, man, what in the world? Why are we going to have to endure that?
0: W- w- one of the great lines, round here, baby, I learned you get what you can get. <laughs> that's kind of where I grew what, up. What
1: song even was that? That, I mean, that was not a hit.
0: That would have been in the Bolo tie days. Okay, That's when he married a girl. Um, how long did they stay married? Mo- moved like, to like, California. Yeah, moved to California and um, lost, his, lost his way. He was a lost soul for a while. Um, Sounds like it, but that's probably the the the, the era of his career he had more hits than he did. Yeah, true. <laughs> when, um, when he went to California and kind of sold out, cashed the big checks, uh, made the big bucks, put on the Bolo tie, and hosted, I think, Saturday Night Live one time, and uh, did a MTV special Unplugged or whatever, uh, making that money. But I think Rev is subtly, very, very discreetly. Don't blame it on reintroduced, me. Reintroduced, do not uh, reintroduce Springsteen Friday. So, um, Jason Priester from All Clemson Tigers womensbasketball.com is here with us today
10: <laughs> do, do they even play women's basketball
0: <laughs> no, listen jason listen so so i go on tiger net last night because you know, after, I, after, I, after the game they, right after fun. the women's I mean, basketball well, I mean, game when you, when you cut your butt it's something that it's fun yeah and i know they do the oh, same thing i know they do the same thing Thank yeah you. when gamecock nation's in meltdown clemson fans forget tiger net go to gamecock central <laughs> you know let's <listen laughs> see what's going on over there because <laughs> i know jason may
1: or may not have done that in so
0: history. um so here's <laughs> what i saw last night two two posters Uh, One guy said, and it's hilarious, he said, I know we don't care about women's basketball, but damn. I mean, mean, come on, really? Um, You make a commitment or you don't. And I believe, and I get, I I mean, I I struggle with this, Jason. If you're going to have a team, try to be good at it. Right? Yeah, I would agree. And I would argue that the Gamecock and Tiger football programs have been good for one another. It's kind of an arms race. You always got hey, they built an upper deck, they built a football operation building, they did this. You better catch up. You better keep up. Um, does it make any sense that Don's team is that much better than Clemson's? Hmm. I you're getting a little bit out of my purview here. Well, I know, we're gonna get to football. You <laughs> I know don't
10: that. I don't do women's basketball very much. no, no offense to women's basketball, but it's title there, nine but.
0: driven. I yes. it's Title IX um, driven.
10: I remember a time when women's basketball used to be pretty good at Clemson. When Jim Davis was the coach, um, they were consistently in the top 25. And sure they kind of fell off a cliff and never to be seen again. I think Amanda Butler is kind of slowly turning that tide, though. She she picked up a five-star recruit here recently in her last signing class. She was in it for this kid from Camden um, just this week who ended up at South Carolina, top two or three player in the country. So, so, at least she's making a little
0: bit of headway. But, man, she's got a long ways but, to but, go. Uh, but here's my point. Has Dawn's success forced Clemson to go hire a coach and pay her good money and give her a recruiting budget? Because you don't want to get beat by 69 points. You're in any sport. You know that.
10: Yeah, um, I think it absolutely makes you stand up, pay attention, and take notice and say, hey, we got to do better.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and I think the baseball programs have always fed off one another. Basketball has been a mystery at both. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Both baseball programs, Clemson is on the precipice. I still, and Jason may disagree with me, I don't think Clemson's football program historically is a blue blood. Recently they are. There's no doubt about it. In the Dabo area, they are a blue blood. But when I think blue blood, I still think Texas and Alabama and Oklahoma and Nebraska – Am, am I right there?
10: Yes, I would agree.
0: Okay, but in baseball, I can argue easily they're both blue bloods. I would agree with that. I mean, in ba- they're both the basketball programs at both universities are something I just can't figure that out. I don't think anybody can figure that out. So let's try. What do you think is wrong? I mean, let, let's be critical of both Gamecock and Clemson basket. Why haven't they done as well as we know they should?
10: I think for a long time, Clemson's administration was okay with being, you know, just. Mediocre, let's put it that way. um You know they they were selling enough season tickets, and, and I think that was good enough for a while.
0: Gave the recruit something to do on their visit. Yeah,
10: absolutely. <laughs> but I, I don't think it is anymore. I think you know Graham Neff was a big basketball guy. You know he loves basketball. I don't think that's going to be good enough anymore. I think he's going to start expecting more of that program. I think this is a big year for Brad Brownell. I think they got to make the tournament. If they don't. You know, I, I think we're probably
0: looking at a change. So you believe the mentality in basketball at Clemson is slowly but steadily changing?
10: Yeah, I do. I think it is. Um, you know, you go back a couple of years ago when they kind of underperformed and didn't make the tournament, and, and Graham Neff puts out this this letter to the fans that, and everybody automatically assumed if, you know, they kind, of, in a way, it kind of implied that if Clemson didn't make the tournament last year, you know, there was going to be a change, even though he didn't say that. People just kind of took it that way.
0: They should have made the tournament. Yes, oh, they, they, should. they should have made the tournament. They deserve to be one of those teams.
10: Well, don't get beat by three bottom feeders, and you don't have to worry about it. There's but always yeah, I, a
0: game or two in the season. I would agree that they probably should have gotten in. You
10: know, you're dealing with P.J. Hall, you know, coming back from injury, not 100% till about the second half of the season. But, yeah, I think there's going to be more expected of this basketball program going forward, and I, I think they're going to be pretty good this year. You know, they, they, they've started out 3-0, had a couple of close ones that probably shouldn't have been close. They're still trying to find their footing with some new guys on that roster. But but I, I, I fully expect that team to easily make the tournament this year. And if they don't, again, I, I think you might be looking at a change. Because, you know, Brad Brownell's been there a long time. He graduates a lot of guys. He runs a clean program. They love that. But I think they want to see this
0: program take the next step. And you would agree, I think you cover this, the SEC made a commitment to basketball. I mean, it's a football league, no doubt about it. Clemson's a football school, no doubt about it. But the SEC said we got to be better at basketball, and several years ago they made a commitment.
10: Yeah, the SEC's basketball is much improved now compared to where it was a decade ago. You can you can tell that they absolutely made an effort to get better and get better. They have,
0: and you would agree that because of March Madness, basketball matters. You want to be in that dance. You want to be in that show. Uh, I mean, the game. What what is the most positive thing to happen to South Carolina, Rev? In the last 20 years i mean you and i enjoy the football run of spurrier but mm-hmm. i mean i'm telling you i've seen i've seen data that shows the, the final, final four, four. run yeah. generated more interest in other words kids from wherever or or, or you know hey what about the university of south carolina maybe i want to go there and it was that football run I mean, it's that basketball run jason it's that march madness is a big deal
10: hey i, I remember when rick barnes was coach at clemson and they made a couple of deep runs i mean I shouldn't say deep, but you know they 16? made a couple. Yeah, they made yeah. a couple of runs, and those were some of the best seasons ever. Um, I loved those seasons. He had Clemson ranked in the top five one year. Just couldn't get over that Tim Duncan huddle hurdle. But yeah, it, it is important. The March Madness is important. Basketball is important. It, it is a money maker, and it bring, it helps it brand the university
0: in. in in a little bit more unique and and diverse way. Let's go to football. I mean, that's why we're here to talk. And uh, and Jason will be with us next Wednesday. At Rivals of Store Divided, Will Webster, host extraordinaire. Will, um, and Will text me earlier this week and asked me if I could get Trump there. And I said, if you'll clean that parking lot, I think I can get the Donald to land his helicopter uh, on top of the building. And we'll have to put a rope ladder um and, and kind yeah. of get him down. And then he'll have, you know, <laughs> okay. take off. Yeah, Will we'll send me a text. Um, Hey, I know you know people. Is there any way to get Trump there? So I called my people, oh, as yeah. I always yeah. do. And I does work said, out for you? Trump said, Ken, of course I'll come. For you? Yeah. Yeah, I'll come. Is Jason going to be there? <laughs> I said, yeah, Jason will be there. He said, of course. I am I mean, just give me somewhere to land my helicopter.
1: Hey, si- Since you went there with Trump, I wish I'd seen this a couple minutes ago when we were talking about Springsteen. Apparently, Springsteen made an announcement yesterday that if Donald Trump is elected in 2024, he's leaving the United States. But did he say that last time? He did.
0: Yeah. I, did I, he, he like leave the United States? I've heard that somewhere before. A lot of celebrities say that. No. Yeah.
1: Did, okay. But, you know. Goodbye. You know what I say, to Bruce. See you later. Good riddance. Yeah, have at it, yeah. my man. You and got and you like can. we said before, this is not an airport. You don't have to announce your departure. It's like, Just it's, go. It's like
0: my brother says. You got
1: a money living it down where you want to live. So <laughs> that's right. So, so go have at it. Live where right. you
0: choose. Where you choose to live. Go buy your own island. Um exactly. It looks to me that Clemson is getting more consistent. They're still not Georgia or Alabama, but but th- there were a lot of concerns early on. In my opinion. Turnovers, inconsistent play, Jason. I'll even say lack of focus, but it seems to me they've cleaned up some of that. You I, say
10: three weeks ago, I say I was worried whether they were going to win another football game all season. Now, now they've won a couple straight, beat Notre Dame, beat a pretty scrappy Georgia Tech team, and beat them handily. You know, it was never really close after that first quarter. But yeah, I think they've kind of simplified some things, especially with the blocking scheme up front, and I think that is really catapulted the performance of the offense. I think. It's gotten a running game going, you know, over 200 yards and he, in both those wins. And it takes the pressure off a young quarterback who's been trying to do too much. And he, he's kind of been playing within the system. And, again, not trying to do too much the past couple of games. And not a lot of stuff down the field, but he he's finding his guys on the short, intermediate stuff just enough in the passing game and leaning heavily on that running game, not making those critical mistakes.
0: Why does your quarterback remind me of Steven Garcia? <laughs> I don't know why, but he does. I mean, it just reminds me of Stephen. You, you you watch him make a couple of throws, and you go like, "Okay, those are." I mean, that's legit throws. I mean, that guy's getting a hold of um of what he's supposed to do and how to do it. And then he does one of these things, and you're like, "What in the? Where did that come from?"
10: Because he cause his good is really good. And then the next play, you're like, well, "What? What the hell, man?" You know, Stephen Garcia. Why, why that sounds a lot like, like Stephen Garcia. Stephen Garcia. But you know, the, the hope is that he will continue to grow because. I'm telling you, I would be the first to admit he is not nearly as far along as I thought he would be at this point. I, I thought he was going to be really good this year, and it's been a mixed bag of results. Again, his goods been really good, but man, there have been some head-scratching moments, the, turn- the turnovers, particularly the fumbles. Um, but he's the guy that really trusts his arm. And he's, he, he, he's going to, he's got that gunslinger type mentality. He's going to put it in the, he's going to throw it into cover sometimes.
0: Steven Garcia. <laughs> yeah. I <It> mean, <laughs> exactly like Steven that, that,
10: Garcia. That throw to Jake Brennan's doing the ends on last week. He lets that thing go. And you're like, oh my God, man, you know, that's going to get picked off. And he just threads the needle touchdown, you know? And you're like, wow,
0: wow now, that, on the talent.
10: that's the guy. Yeah. That's who you thought he was going to
0: be. Okay. Let, let's go down this hypothetical road. Um, Florida State's the best team Clemson has played. Is North Carolina the second best or second most talented team? Does North Carolina have more talent than Notre Dame?
10: On the offensive side, yeah. I don't know about Walk the defensive me through side. That. Walk know, me the,
0: through the challenges that the Tar Heels pose. Oh,
10: man, this offense is explosive. Drake May is a first-round pick, top-five pick. Um, th- yeah. Those receivers are dynamic. Clemson's not seen a group of receivers like this since Florida State, not even Notre Dame. Um that that running back, he is a big bruiser. They use him in the screen game. I mean, he's a little he does a little bit of everything, which is <laughs> well over hundred yards a game. Um, but but Tez Walker, the, the 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 receiver who was not cleared by the NCAA until five weeks ago, he's played in five games. Only five games, and he leads the team in catches. Three of those five games, he's gone over hundred yards. I am very much looking forward to that matchup between him and Nate Wiggins. Um Nate Wiggins is, you know, a Potential first round corner on Clemson's defense who just totally shut Keon Coleman down, right? So that's a matchup I'm looking forward to. But for me, the difference between this offense, and Notre Dame's offense, is the explosiveness and, and Drake May. And no offense to Sam Hartman, he he's great and all, but but Drake May's on a whole different level. He, he he just his eyes are always down the field. He he can beat you with his arm. He can beat you with his legs. And if you do not play discipline and let him get outside and start creating. Explosive plays with his legs is going to be a long day, but they give up a lot. That's the difference for me. That defense is up and down. There's some talent on that defense. There's a matter of fact, a, a guy Travis Shaw who Clemson wanted badly on that defensive line. He's still only third string. I mean, you know, there, there's some holes in that defense. They. They're not very good, particularly in the fourth quarter, and I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I was looking at them last night, but the, the fourth quarter numbers are bad. They give up a lot of yards and a lot of points in the fourth quarter. It seems like they wear down. So so if it's a close game and it's going into fourth quarter and you don't know which way it's going to go, maybe give Clemson the edge because, again, they, they just tend to wear down in the fourth quarter. That defense has not been very
0: consistent at all since week one anyways. Let's just take a break. I want to come back. Jason will hang with us another. Can you stay another session? Yes, okay, sir. we'll stay another segment. Be back in just a few moments. Okay, for the record, I have no interest in the Texas A&M coaching job. I have enormous interest <laughs> in getting fired from Texas A&M yeah, as right. a college football coach. But one of the names, and rightfully so. I mean, when a job like A&M comes open, and it's one of the most illustrious jobs in America. um, I mean, they underachieve for whatever reason but but nobody doubts that they can pay whomever they choose to go after it pays well. whatever it takes to um to get them there um Dabo gave the answer I would expect Dabo to give he's earned the right to answer that question that way any interest in Dabo exploring what Texas A&M may or may not have to offer
10: oh no he he gave his typical answer every time he's asked about a job like that i i'm focused on this game this week right now but yeah that that that's not Texas A and M and Dabo Sweeney's more like oil and water, you know. Too um, too t- too many cooks in the kitchen over there, I think, for Dabo Sweeney. He, big he, bank accounts. Yeah, he like he likes to run his program a certain way and does not like to be told what to do by boosters. And I, I don't think he'd fit in very well in that culture over there.
0: But but Jason, I think you'll agree with me. Um, when I was younger, it was not uncommon for a coach to go to a school and say twenty years. It seems to me the shelf life now. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years. They're tired of you. You're tired of them. Um, they paid you well. You've run a bunch of ball games. What What, what do you believe? Maybe not A and M, but but at some point in time, does Dabo begin wondering whether there's another chapter of the book that needs to be written?
10: You know, I just had this conversation Wednesday night. Actually, you know, where does Dabo Sweeney end up in the future? Because most people have him pegged to end up at Alabama, right? And I I don't know that I see that happening, actually. I I think he's too smart to be the guy that follows Nick Saban because that's going to be a no-win situation for whoever takes that job. Amen.
0: I'm with you there. Um,
10: And I think he's too smart for that. Uh, You know, Clemson's kind of his home. He's been there over 20 years now. His kids grew up there. That's all they've ever known. And that program is his baby. He built it, you know, no disrespect to Tommy Bowen. He laid the foundation. But Dabo kind of built it from the ground up. That's his blood, sweat, and tears. He, he doesn't have to go or, or worry about go, going and taking over something somebody else has built, that this is something he's created and, and his image, his vision. Um, you know, 10 years from now, I don't know. With the way the landscape's changing and, and, you know, so much on the portal and NIL and away from development and away from education, the things that he values the most, 10 15 years from now if he's even still coaching cuz he you know he's over 50 now he's not a young, young yeah. pup anymore um maybe I could see him going to a smaller school and seeing what he could do there I don't ever
0: see him going off to the NFL um could he do something similar to what Ray Tanner did could was, he leave the the sideline and go in some other role at another school, Clemson, or another school.
10: Maybe his future's in administration if he chooses to go that route. I think he's absolutely cut out for it. You know, I mean, he he's got that. He's a people person. He's got that personality. He's very outgoing, very personable. Um, I, I get it. He's very, he, he's kind of like a lightning rod. You either like him or you hate him. But but if you get to know him, he's very personable. He's very nice. He's very outgoing. And so yeah, I can see. I, I can see going taking on an administrative role at some point. And I could see him maybe being the guy that follows the guy that follows Saban and going in and cleaning up that mess 10 years down the road. If there's a
0: mess left to clean up kind of a Steve Spurrier backside of your career. Yeah. Go, go like somewhere that. that you're not expected. I mean, Spurrier didn't leave Florida and go to Michigan. I mean, he took a bit of a rest, but well, he did go to the Redskins and they got him rich? I mean, that, that, that made him financially never have to worry about money. Daniel Snyder, thank you very much for making Steve Spurrier such a, such a wealthy man. I want to go to something to get your take on this. Because Gamecock fans try to understand their program. Uh, Clemson fans try to understand their program. Where do you see the Gamecock football program today? Uh, <laughs> middle of the pack. Okay. Middle of the pack. I don't right. think I've been a Gamecock fan be a fool to argue with that.
10: Um, just To me, I see, for me, South Carolina football has been a model of mediocrity. And it shouldn't be. They they should be better than what they have been. They've got the resources. Um, I think there's no excuse for them to not have been better than they have have been over the past decade. Uh, I get it. You know, they they play in the SEC most years. They play one of the tougher SEC schedules
0: a lot. Plus, of years. North Carolina and Clemson.
10: Yeah, and then like a year like this year, you play North Carolina and Clemson. So I I understand that aspect, but I expected more than what they've done this year. I I, I thought they were going to be better um i did see a scenario in which they'd be better and the record might be worse than last year but i thought it'd be better than what it's been this year Um,
0: they've been non-competitive in a few games that they thought they would be competitive in you you know this it's not always the win and loss you go to missouri and get your doors blown off you go another place and get your doors blown off you don't look competitive in in certain games but but the reason i asked you that is because you and i've talked off the air there's something about beamer that reminds both of us of Dabo. Explain that from your perspective.
10: Yeah, he. I. I think he's very similar to Dabo in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think Dabo was looked at as a cheerleader by a lot of people outside the Clemson fan base, and, and I a little bit s- silly. Yeah, a little bit silly at times, and, and maybe even a little cringe at times. And, and I've seen some similar characteristics in, in Shane Beamer, but but that's the kind of stuff that resonates with these kids today. That it, it kind of draws them in. It, 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 they. They kind of are drawn to those kind. Those kind of traits in a head coach, it worked well for Dabo Sweeney. It's kind of worked well for Shane Beamer on the recruiting trail. You know, they they they've recruited fairly well for the most part. If they can keep this class together, right? Um, they they've done okay in the transfer portal. It's just those results haven't really translated to the field. Um, you know, it, with the portal today, you can win a lot faster than you could have in the past. I I, I, I said it last week. I, I I think South Carolina's got the right guy there. If if he will make some necessary adjustments, and, to that Dabo, did staff. That. and, and Dabo did that. And Dabo's
0: early in his career, Dabo realized what he was good at and what he wasn't, and he went and found high quality people that were good at the things that he knew he was not the best in the world at. I mean, there's a great beauty in knowing what you don't know, and I've always thought that was probably the genius of Dabo Sweeney.
10: Yeah, Dabo's never been a coordinator. He's never been an offense coordinator. never been a defense coordinator. never called plays. So, so I think he kind of realized what his strengths were and what his weaknesses were, and he went out and got somebody to kind of offset those or, or people to offset those, and it worked out well. And I think Shane Beamer needs to do the same
0: thing as South Carolina. Both teams have similar games this week, at home against a, a pretty good opponent. I mean, Kentucky's probably a little better than South Carolina. North Carolina not quite as good as Clemson, but it wouldn't surprise either of us if both won or both lost. Sunday morning. I mean, wouldn't. I mean, I would be surprised if, if UNC beat Clemson and Kentucky beat, but I also wouldn't be surprised if the Gamecocks and Tigers both won, but then it starts rivalry week. And I told one of my kids 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, ah, probably 20 years ago by now, because they'd been to Alabama games and they'd been to Georgia games and they'd been to Kentucky games. And they'd been to all these SEC, you know, hotly contested Because it just means more, Jason. You know how that is. It just means more. (laughs) I know Jason loves it. I know he loves that. (laughs) But I told my kids, I said, hey, when you go to your first Carolina Clemson game, it's obvious. I mean, it just feels different. There's a different vibe, there's a different uh, sensation. You're around the Clemson program, it is different on rivalry week.
10: Oh, it's very different. And it starts on that Monday. You know, in those press conferences, there's a different feeling in the room. There's the players are saying things differently you know you get kind of bland answers generic answers all throughout the year but but once South Carolina week gets here that kind of changes and you start getting more forthcoming stuff I'll, I'll never forget you know Jake Brenningstool last year and I don't know if, if he probably regrets it now but you know he, he used the words dominate and um golly I cannot remember the exact word he used because South Carolina was coming off that big win over Tennessee and, and I think he said I I want to say he said, you know, they expect the South Carolina to come in there with a big head, and he expected them to dominate, you know, and it didn't quite work out that way, yeah. now, did it? so, yeah. <laughs> But but you get a lot of things that you won't normally get in other weeks. So, so yeah, th- th- it's different, man. You can feel it. You can feel it all week long.
0: I, I love it when Tiger fans say, well, Florida State's a bigger rivalry. And Gamecock, so well, Georgia's a bigger rivalry. No, it's not. No, it's not. You don't walk in a Bojangles and somebody's got a Florida State hat on.
4: It's you don't walk in a,
0: in, in a McDonald's and somebody's got a Georgia hat on. We live amongst one another. And, and we get along. I mean, J- Jason knows this. If he needed anything in his world, I'd try to help him. But I feel the same way or feel like he'd do the same for me. But that given week, I mean, th- there, there's an intensity there that I think is healthy and good for the state.
10: Oh, yeah. It, it is healthy and good for the state. And there is no rivalry rival of clemson or south carolina's who is bigger than the i mean there it's not even close i don't even know how anybody makes that argument that florida state's a bigger rival for clemson than, than south carolina heck florida state doesn't even look at clemson as a rival half they those, got the gators that, down yeah, there do worry that about fan base don't care about clemson <laughs> um yeah th- as far as rivalries go th- this is it you know clemson's got north carolina state with the textile ball who they've been playing forever won't be going forward Georgia Tech, who they've been playing forever, and, and with that deal, but but this is the rivalry. It, it's in state. It, it's just different when it's two in-state schools. Kind of, you know, you got Clemson, South Carolina. I know it doesn't get the same kind of publicity that Alabama and Auburn gets, but but it's the same kind of feel, same kind of hate, um, but respect at the same time sure. every other
0: week. Because I think Dabo and Shane really genuinely like one another. I mean, I you know I know from our side. I mean, I've talked to people who are close to Shane. He likes Dabo. He respects what Dabo's done. And I've heard that Dabo feels the same way about Beamer.
10: Yeah, you can tell Dabo really likes um, Shane Beamer. Matter of fact, he, he made a little joke about Shane last week. He was talking about how Mack Brown opened up his practice and his program to, to him when he first got into coaching when Mack was still at Texas, welcomed his coaching staff in there, I think it was. And Dabo Sweeney said he he, he would do the same for anything. He said, but... Not gonna let Shane come up in
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that Frank Beamer was kind to of Dabo in the early days and Shane being Frank's son. I mean, there there's some but anyway, Jason will join us next Wednesday at Rivals. And, and and there's, of, a,
1: there's an extra ingredient to the rivalry game this year. We'll have a former president of the United States, apparently, that is confirmed he is coming to the game.
0: Yeah, it's just gonna it goose up traffic.
1: Yeah. yeah That's I what i am concerned wait. about. Can't wait. Yeah, <laughs> it, it
0: goofs up it goose up traffic. Um it'll be interesting. Here, here's the deal. You ready? The upper deck will cheer for Trump. That's the regular folk. You get to that club level, you won't hear the resounding (laughs) a chant. because Yeah, he's messing that thing up for those people who built those (laughs) machines. You know what I mean? And that's one thing Garnet and Orange agree with. And and I'll say this. uh, At our tailgate, it'll be 70% Gamecocks, but 30% Tigers. And I remember one time one of my Gamecock buddies wanted to be a jerk and act stupid, and he's never been invited back. I mean, I got too many friends. That bleed orange, and they respect me bleeding garnet. I respect them bleeding orange. It is a very, very intense rivalry. And I'll tell you, man, I, I've enjoyed over the years being a part of it.
10: Oh, yeah. I think it's one of the best in college football. Again, it doesn't get the notoriety of uh, Ohio State, Michigan, or, or Alabama, and Auburn, but you're not going to find a rivalry more heated than this one you might find one that's as heated but you're not going to find one more heated than clemson south carolina
0: the only thing i miss and i mean this sincerely is steve spurrier i mean he was so good for the he's good for that anyway but he would say that bunch of the upstate yeah. you know and he never going to... Co- college football
10: was better with steve spurrier Amen. but i don't miss him in south carolina
0: <laughs> fair enough no. uh he was an sob but then he became our when SOB. And SOB. Was, we, yeah. we liked him as our SOB, and not so much. Couldn't beat him. Yeah, well, I mean, he had, he had, uh, oh, dabbo, oh, dabbo. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, thank you, Jason. Yes, sir. My pleasure. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there.
1: Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air.
0: Hey, good morning. Uh, earlier in the week, weekend, you talked about
9: uh, renaming the bowl. Yes, sir. Bowl, yes, sir. Something else. Uh, how about uh, how about uh, um don't tread on me, bowl?
0: Now you're talking. Now we're playing off some of our secession tendencies. Um, yeah, we could fly the flag. We could have a yellow and a orange and a yellow and a garnet flag. There you go. There you go. <laughs> now, now, now we're talking. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. The don't tread on me, bowl. How about just don't tread on me, like bedlam. Why do I like that so much? Bedlam. Don't tread on me. Mm, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah. You don't have to add bowl. Right. I mean, but, but well, we got to put bowl in there. Why? Why? Bedlam doesn't. Mm. Red River Shootout didn't. What about don't tread on me? You want to know more about the Clemson Carolina game? Go to don't tread on me. Dot com. You got the coil. I bet that's
1: already registered. Well, I would imagine <laughs>
0: it is, but you know, sue somebody. We do it. We litigate in America uh, endlessly anyway. It is a different experience. I I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, this will be a Friday show. Next Monday and Tuesday, we do our thing. Uh, Wednesday with Rivals of Store Divide. And I think this is the perfect time to thank Will Webster and his crowd, not just for hosting us uh, the way they do, but they support what we do here a lot at Community Broadcasters. Um, I'm always reading a Rivals ad about Garnet Orange and anything you could imagine. Uh, I mean, it is the ultimate superstore. I mean, if there's anything in this world you could imagine with a tiger paw or a chicken on it, they've got <laughs> it. That rivals uh, a store divided. And even things you can't imagine, and <laughs> even things you can't imagine, and things that you probably shouldn't imagine. Uh, <laughs> they, they have that. But anyway, uh, they take really good care of us, and uh, and been a part of our uh, wake up Carolina and community. Broadcast just and for I a long time. Remind,
1: uh, people, everybody's invited. I mean, yeah. we, we'll have uh, Krispy Kreme's going to provide donuts and coffee like they always do. So if you're listening and you're interested in the Rival and you want to come be part of the festivities, uh, we'll be on the air from six to ten a.m. Wednesday, live from Rival to store divided, and we'll be across a lot of radio station frequencies. By the way, as we join forces with our sister station ESPN Radio in the Florence area, and we'll be on. All of those stations
0: yeah c- come join us I mean it's a lot of fun the fun part about this year is as a Gamecock fan I mean nobody saw that coming last year I mean I didn't yeah I'd watch the Gamecocks get a little better with the upset against Tennessee but I didn't see that coming especially up in in Clemson so you go this right. year and the obvious isn't so obvious you know That's you're, you're right. talking about wow okay what what happens in Columbia tonight game but there's something about we were talking yesterday some Gamecock buddies of ours and we were trying to go back in time, and the number of upsets during the day is minuscule to the number of upsets at night. And there's something about—I uh, don't know. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to be a homer here. <laughs> there's something about Williams Bryce at night,
1: and not just the lights. No, I like it's the, light not the lights.
0: It's um, I mean, it's a little bit like, and, I, and I'll say this, and and I, I mean to be complimentary, but I don't think I am. It's—I mean, at times at night, it can be a little intimidating. Mm-hmm. You know, you that's walk in between warehouses and buildings to get to a stadium that's not located on a safe, secure campus. I mean, I've got Clemson friends that have told me, I'm never going up there again at night. I was scared to death when I lived there. <laughs> you know, it's dark and I'm walking behind warehouses and they got me parking behind two big plants. And I, <laughs> I've I heard know.
1: people say that, but they say it's because we're mean.
0: Well, I mean, we can be. I mean we can be. I mean, I know people now collecting batteries, you know.
4: <laughs>
0: waiting on the Clemson faithful to make their way. But I mean it can be a pretty intimidating place at night. And um and we agreed as Gamecock fans, the number of upsets that we've had at Williams Bryce in the day is is small. The number of upsets at night it, it's it's I mean, it's a it's a happening place uh, when you get to Williams Bryce at night. Now I'm not saying it's Death Valley and Baton Rouge. They're famous for but they've actually set off seismic events at baton rouge on a saturday night cajuns drink more than gamecock fans (laughs) do (laughs) cajun drinks more than about anybody but anyway uh, let's do some trivia josh you ready it's time for our takes mondays to make friday's trivia brought to you by our good friends at pepsi of florence want to thank pepsi of florence once again for supporting our feeble attempt at radio brilliance they've been incredibly gracious and kind it's been a one Celsius show today because I ain't going to the gym when I leave here. So I've been a bit
1: mild-mannered. Oh, so you planned accordingly.
0: Well, I mean, if, I, if it were a two Celsius day, I'd have never picked on what you did with Bruce. Uh. But because I've been very focused, laser-focused, oh. um, not caffeine-induced focus, but real genuine focus. <laughs> uh, I and saw I didn't what, do anything I saw what Bruce. you tried to do. So here's the question. You ready? The correct answer to this one's a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. Talking about the SEC Five Football Conference. Talking about celebrities and athletes. One of the first celebrities, athletes, or athlete celebrities was Joe Namath. What college team did Broadway Joe play for? What college team? Because early on, they were just players. Remember, we talked about this week. They worked side jobs. Joe Namath was a football player turned celebrity. Hence the moniker, Broadway Joe. What college team did Joe Namath play for? Hi, ah, you are on the air. What's your guess? Alabama. You're right. Roll tide is what uh, <laughs> I don't th- I think Joe would really have got suspended a couple of times for living up to the name Broadway, Broadway Joe. Who is this and where are you calling from? Oh, well,
13: uh this is Charles from Lamar, okay. but I'm calling from Florence.
0: All ah, right, Charles, appreciate <laughs> you, you listening. Throughout the morning, appreciate your um your listenership. But yeah, Broadway Joe played at Alabama. Josh will get Charles's information in a couple of minutes, and um and we'll get him a six pack of Pepsi product. a Couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. But when I think of celebrities and athletes, and I start thinking about okay, who was the first celebrity athlete? I don't know who the first was, but Joe Namath certainly was one of the one of the uh, originals that figured out a way to make money. Remember the ads he did, mint coats. You know, he's kind of a ladies man and, you know, Broadway Joe and, uh, New York jets quarterback upset the Baltimore Colts in the first ever, no, not the first ever Super Bowl. It would have been the first Super Bowl, the AFC won, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And he was quite the hero, uh, in that endeavor. Um, and once again, in, in the spirit of football, we will begin focusing and Jason's right. Come Monday, it becomes a little bit different, uh, Gamecock fans try to make an argument that Georgia is a big rivalry. And they are. I mean, they're in the same conference. They're a neighboring state. You recruit some of the kids. Georgia's kind of left us in the wake or in the dust. but, but and, and Clemson fans, I've heard them say, well, I don't know, man. Florida State might be as big a rivalry as you guys are. Uh, until that week. And you bump into yep. Gamecocks and you bump into Tiger. Now, you could be the guy at the gym. There's this guy that's been going to the gym. I've been going about 12 years now to the same gym. And in those twelve years, I've watched one human being switch from Gamecock to Tiger, back to Gamecock, back to Tiger. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's unique. It, it kind of depends on who's having the best year. Yeah, he's got this um, he's got this Gamecock shirt he wears, and then he's got this Tiger shirt he wears. I've always applauded the fan base of both teams for being so intensely loyal, almost rabid. It's just fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's I great it. fun. It's a great rivalry. Uh, it, it kind of, um, I said yesterday, and I'll stick to this, I mean, the heritage is a big deal. It's economic development. The race in Darlington's a big deal. It's economic development. But if you've lived here long, the Carolina Clemson football game on that given Saturday in November is the biggest sporting event in this state, period. Second and close. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.